go. Happy. Yes, stop at the hour. Happy Monday. Uh, you want to say something? You are Mike. It's just uh, still. Uh, I'm stuck using my PC rather than my iPhone, so I'm still trying to figure out how to use it. Thank you very much. Okay. Club Deck, wa? I'm actually using Club Deck now. Club Deck Scout. Oh. Okay. okay. Here we this. go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. Where's their horn? Do 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 do. So here are the biggest stories at this very moment on Monday, August thirtieth. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a fantastic weekend, soaking up what's left of the summer sun. Here, the first story is about the iPhone thirteen, which is due to come out in just a. F- be announced formally by Apple at their annual event that they always do early September. It's looking almost certain that it will be uh, September 14th will be the the date. And we expect the official announcement of that date where they host that event. That should probably come tomorrow or yeah, in the next three days ish. So, but there are, there are leakers who have, you know, now that the iPhone is up to number 13, it's becoming quite clear who actually has access to the information in advance and who doesn't. And more than anybody else, the LeBron James of iPhone leaking information is Kuo. And Kuo is back saying, so this is almost certain, you know, Kuo has the best track record of anybody with the iPhone Intel. Kuo says that iPhone 13 hardware and this is wild. This is a surprise. It's, this is nuts. <laughs> this, is, this is nuts. I would have never predicted No that. one would have guessed this. iPhone 13 hardware could support low Earth orbit satellite communications. And that's wild, y'all, because that means your phone will work anywhere on the whole freaking planet with or without, uh, you know, you could be in the, you can now live on a boat full time. That's you that. can now not mount it, mount a dish to the front of your car and get pulled over by the CHP. <laughs> yeah, there's a Chris is <laughs> making uh, that means po- you just need a Starlink subscription and then you can access it anywhere. In the world. No, and in you this case, it's even better than that because this one is not about Starlink. He says they're specifically, or I believe Kuo might be a woman actually. Um, that. It says the iPhone 13 will feature low Earth orbit satellite communication connectivity to allow users to make calls and send messages in areas without 4G or 5G, you know, like San Francisco. So according to the reliable analyst Ming-Chi Kuo, uh, in a note to investors seen by Mac Rumors, Kuo explained that the iPhone 13 lineup will feature hardware that is able to connect to low Earth, low Earth orbit satellites, uh, which will soon be launched by a company called... Um, Who's the one that's doing this for phones, essentially? It's a bit different than the Starlink system. Iridium, maybe? Uh, Is it an old company? It might be company? the it might be the Canadian uh UK-ish one. Yeah, hold on. Here it says. If if enabled, the relevant software features this could allow iPhone 13 users to make Sid's calls. Here. Sid's here. Let's interrogate them. Yeah, and and send messages without the need for 4G or 5G. The iPhone 13 reportedly features a customized Qualcomm X60 base chip that supports satellite communications. Other smartphone brands are apparently currently waiting until 2022 to adopt the X65 base chip 
necessary to implement satellite communication functions. SpaceX's Starlink is a purveyor of low-Earth orbit internet connectivity that some readers may already be familiar with, but the LEO satellite communication service provider that is most likely to cooperate with Apple in terms of technology and service coverage is said to be Global Star. Qualcomm has purportedly been working with Global Star to support the N53 band in future X65-based chips. Cool explained that the simplest scenario is providing low-Earth orbit connectivity to users is if individual network operators work with Global Star. This means that customers of a partner network operator could use Global Star satellite communication service in the iPhone 13 directly through their network operator with no additional contracts or payments required. Ah, so what that means is if you're in America, Verizon would likely partner with Global Star to pick up all the all the places where Verizon has shitty coverage. Makes sense. And then if you're in in Europe and you're an Orange subscriber, then anywhere you go where Orange doesn't have coverage, they would partner with Global Star to pick up that coverage. So then you would pay some additional you know, bonus satellite coverage, uh, no doubt. Uh, no doubt they'll find a way to charge you for it. But the point is, is you would have coverage globally. That truly wild idea. So, and the, but the, the weird part is, is this would be in the iPhone 13 from a hardware perspective with these uh, uh, Qualcomm chips, this X65 chips, before the satellites are even up in the air. And that's that's a little unconventional for Apple. Apple's normally a little bit lags behind in the in for example with 5g where apple kind of was a year behind the the other smartphone manufacturers on putting in the 5g radio chips and whatnot um because the 5g antennas weren't up yet so there was no real reason to have the 5g chips until you know last year but where the other phones had the chips two years ago um so chris you have a thought on that Let's All bring right, Seed, so, Michelle, and Jay. Okay, thank you. Yep. So now I'm not as, I mean, it's very exciting, but now I'm not as excited because this is common. Um, these radios have uh, stacks that they can load up that run all kinds of different uh, codecs, so to speak. So the fact that it supports the satellite is one thing, whether or not there's a full-blown network in the sky that Apple's able to use right away is another. So. I think if if anything, this was probably a note that said, "Hey, look, these modems have these, you know, have the ability to do LEO." Um, not necessarily saying that they're going to launch it tomorrow or whatever, but still, this is huge. It's just, you know, I thought this was like something we show up tomorrow and they're like, you know, uh, satellite would, for everybody, would, yeah, air sky or sky air or whatever skyport or whatever they'll call it, you know. Yeah, cool. Added that low Earth app. Orbit satellite communications is a technology comparable to MM Wave 5G in terms of its impact on the network industry and that Apple may leverage both technologies. Kuo says that Apple is optimistic about the trend of satellite communications and set up a specific team for research and development of technologies related to it some time ago. The company is believed to have plans to bring LEO satellite communications to more devices in the future to provide innovative experiences these may include Apple's mixed reality head-mounted display device. Oh, well, okay. Now this is getting interesting. Electric vehicle and other IoT accessories, according to... Let's read that paragraph again nice and slowly. The company is believed, this is Apple, to have plans to bring satellite communications to more devices in the future to provide innovative experiences. These may include Apple's mixed reality 
headset, head mounted display device. That's their AR device that we know they're working on. And it's, will this be the event where they finally reveal it uh, in two weeks from now? It could be. It could be. It's not expected. The, the experts aren't expecting it. They were expecting it at their last event, to be honest with you, not, but not at this one. Um, so who knows? I'm, because of the, I, you know what though? I imagine they, they just might because of the Christmas tie-in, but they actually have to get all the developers building all of the apps for it initially. So they, Apple does two big events per year, basically. They do one in in the spring, which is called the WWDC, Worldwide Developer Conference. That's their flag. That's their biggest event. <clears throat> but their focus of that event is for all of the app makers, all of the app developers. And they show off new hard, sometimes new hardware, new platforms, new operating systems, like they did at the last event. And they tell all the developers everything they need to know. And it's a week long and it's like university. It's like a week-long university for all the app developers to learn all the new stuff that they need to know and new tools and new programming languages and everything, everything, everything. And then they have this event in the fall, first, first, usually first week of September. It looks like it'll be second week of September this year, almost always on a Tuesday. So that's why we're thinking September 14th. So especially because I haven't announced it yet, if it was going to be September 7th, they would probably have announced it already. So uh, it's looking like it'll be September 14th. And and we already know they're going to have it on September 14th. And then the new iPhone 13 will be available for pre-order on the Friday, which is what, the 20th with 14 plus five on the 19th. So they'll have the event on the 14th and they'll say, here's the new iPhone 13. It'll be ready for order on Friday. So we know that's coming, but, and we know it's nearly identical to the iPhone 12, just incremental increases to the batteries and the cameras and the screens, always on screen, significantly bigger battery, to be honest, but you kind of need that if you have an always on screen and as minor improvements to the cameras, but notably the LiDAR camera that most people don't even know they have on their phone. And that's actually kind of important as we are on the verge, stepping over the threshold into the AR space, because we're about to transition from the smartphone era into the metaverse era. And just for the for the slow kids in class who haven't heard this rant before, you we had the PC era from when, when in 1995, when when Microsoft launched Windows 95. That was the moment that computers went into everybody's homes. And that era lasted until 2007 when Apple launched the iPhone. That was the PC era. And then it became the smartphone era with the launch of the iPhone in 2007 until now or until whenever Apple releases their AR device that we were just talking about. Will it be September 14th? It could be. That would be miraculous. Holy cow. Would that get geeks around the world incredibly excited? But this AR era is already coming into play and all of the pieces are starting to snap into place because the iPhone 12 Pro Max has a LiDAR camera on it, even though most people don't know that. And it allows you to do 3D scans of any object. And like a, a great example would be you take a little teddy bear and put it on your desk and then use your phone and make a circle around the teddy bear. And next thing you know, you've got a 3D teddy bear that you can import into virtual reality or augmented reality or into a video game that you're making or whatever. And people are doing this. Millions of people are doing this 
tens of times a day and you're getting 10 million uh, everything is being scanned into 3D as we speak. Entire cities are being scanned. And by the way, they predict Apple Maps itself and Google Maps are all, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, they're already starting to do it. They're, they're starting to be 3D scanned. When you go into some cities, the city itself is a 3D map of the city. The walls of the city, of every building has been scanned by a car driving through the city. Apple's doing this with their Apple cars as we speak. So the the current they're they're in the just like it took a while for Google Street View where you could you know move the little person icon in the corner and drag them onto the street and then walk down the street in Street View it took a while to get all of the cars to you know take photos you know every ten meters of every street they're now starting to three D scan all of the streets and now you what's amazing about that is when we go into AR and VR you'll be able to walk down those streets as if you are there in a video game. And it'll look far more realistic than a, uh, it'll be an actual legitimate kind of video game experience rather than um, clicking through images on Street View. And that's already started. So this LiDAR scanning thing is a big deal. And of course, they're going to improve the LiDAR scanning cameras on the iPhone 13. That's That's the point there. So, um we will see but this leo lower satellite communications this was to- this came out of nowhere totally unexpected and by like i said the most um highly regarded iphone secret leaker of them all which is kuo so who has a stellar record of predicting such things wild 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 okay so the next big story is uh number the second biggest story is from decrypt and decrypt is uh, yes frost if i just quickly add on that actually makes perfect sense um because this morning and you'll you'll see a tweet coming up in case i have to leave okay from my end because the company that does uh all of the maps uh for amazon uh, for sorry for google and apple um out of india has just filed for an ipo so it makes uh, perfect sense yeah so the next biggest story is from decrypt and decrypt is quickly establishing itself as the preferred uh blog for the crypto enthusiasts of the world your bitcoin and nft folks and the headline says that jack dorsey which is the ceo of twitter and square which is a big fintech company and mike brock and mike brock is who was just put in charge of square's new secret project called tbd very cleverly named to be to be determined but they're calling it tbd so jack dorsey and mike brock say that squares tbd is building a bitcoin centric decentralized exchange for digital assets squares cash app is popular way for people to buy and sell bitcoin that's true and it's, and it's one of the easiest ways for people to buy and sell Bitcoin, in, in all fairness. And, oh, shit, where did my article go? Here we go. So, uh, Squares, uh, TBD, Jack Dorsey reveals plans to help onboard more users into Bitcoin via Squares TBD initiative. Squares' new TBD division is working on a Bitcoin-centric decentralized exchange. And that's kind of interesting because normally exchanges are not decentralized they're centralized they're controlled and a decentralized exchange depends on how they're defining the word decentralized um is not as as controllable it's self-sustaining separate 
that that's the whole nature of decentralized versus centralized is it kind of like the pirate bay is decentralized and in a way that nobody can shut it down even if they wanted to um and bitcoin itself tr is uh, decentralized such that no one could actually really shut down Bitcoin. You can shut down the on-ramps and off-ramps to Bitcoin, but you can't actually shut down Bitcoin. So th this plan, they call that a DEX, a decentralized exchange, DEX. So the planned DEX or DEX will be open source and permissionless, yet will yet allow users to fund any wallet using fiat currency. And this is kind of the dream come true scenario and Jack is fulfilling his uh, role as the as the crypto messiah, <laughs> as the as the kind of Kabbalah esque uh, uh, supernatural kind of religion of Bitcoin. And many people have made that comparison uh, that the whole crypto space and Bitcoin particularly has a kind of religious aspect to it. And and Jack is positioning himself as the the Christ like messiah figure in in this domain by the by, Bitcoin Jesus. He's Bitcoin Jesus. <laughs> Squares Cash App is popular way. To buy and sell Bitcoin, but CEO Jack Dorsey's love for leading cryptocurrency is immense. And the financial services firm plans to do a lot more in the space. Last month, Dorsey announced a new Bitcoin-centric division called TBD. And today he revealed what it's going to be, a decentralized exchange. Decentralized exchanges, DEX for short, based on other blockchains are well-established, such as Ethereum's Uniswap and SushiSwap and Binance's Smart Chain PancakeSwap. TBD intends to make a fully permissionless and decentralized exchange built on Bitcoin, however, to provide users a wide array of on-ramps for exchanging fiat currency for, for Bitcoin. Here's the quote. We're determined. Uh, we've determined TBD's direction. Help us build an open platform to create a decentralized exchange for Bitcoin. Dorsey, also CEO of Twitter, tweeted today. <clears throat> Unlike Coinbase and Binance, for example... A decentralized exchange has no centralized intermediary overseeing the token swaps. They happen directly between users. And that means there's no boss in charge to put in fucking jail if the government wants to crack down on it. It's intentionally designed like uh, Pirate Bay has. It's between users. I put up music files or a movie from Hollywood and other people can download it. And there's nobody to... Uh, go and arrest and put in jail. Well, there there used to be in the case of the Pirate Bay and and like my buddy Peter Sund, who was one of the three co-founders and the three co-founders were put in jail. And then they realized even with the Pirate Bay co-founders in jail, it kept running. So clearly they weren't pulling the strings. They weren't actually managing it. Clearly they had managed to architect it, orchestrate it, manifest it in a way where it's truly self-sustaining. So, uh, Jack and uh, is intentionally building this decentralized, uh, decentralized exchange to operate the same way because at some point the governments are going to say, hey, Jack, that's great. You built this, but you're going to have to do this and this and this and this and this. And he's going to say, no, I don't. And they're going to say, well, if you don't, we're going to arrest you. He says, that's fine, but it's not you're not going to be able to stop this thing from running. It's going to run anyways, unlike WikiLeaks, <laughs> which is run by Julian Assange, who is incarcerated and now it doesn't exist. So. That's the clever game at play here is how to build technical systems that can operate separately from its creators fully, even if they're incarcerated for a very long time. That's then that's what that's the whole, you know, where this, the power of decentralized comes in. So anyway, un, unlike Coinbase and Binance, it's a it will run separately. However, 
you cannot use fiat currency in the DEX, which lacks the needed on-ramps to traditional finance institutions and doesn't have know your customer compliance procedures. Right. It's not operating under the rules of normal governance of, of exchanges. And the governments are going to say, nope, you can't use this. Banks, you're not allowed to touch this exchange. It's a decentralized exchange. We have no jurisdiction over it. You're not allowed to build a ramp over to it to, to let people get to it and back. Some people are going to build ramps. And they're going to have to build those ramps in a way that uh, the, the governments aren't going to be able to meddle with uh, to let people in and out of it. So this is going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. It, the, the article continues. Square's vision <coughs> of a Bitcoin decentralized, decentralized exchange will apparently forge a different path. Dorothy, Dorsey linked to an extensive thread from Square's executive, Mike Brock, TBD project lead, who detailed the potential path forward as they build the open source decks. We believe Bitcoin will be the native currency of the Internet, Brock wrote. While there are many projects to help make the Internet more decentralized, our focus is solely on sound global monetary system for all, but including all requires a few pieces we think are missing. Brock points to both Cash App and Coinbase as centralized avenues for exchanging fiat currency for Bitcoin, but suggests they have a number of issues and the global implementation varies. Ultimately, Square wants to create a service that enables users to fund any kind of Bitcoin wallet, even those not hosted by centralized exchanges or services using fiat money. And the article goes on and on and on. And uh, it's for, for the crypto geeks, it's quite exciting uh, to, to watch this one. May, you have, want to make a comment on this? I'm just super um, excited simply because this has been something that I've been following with Jack after he spoke at the Bitcoin conference right. and I'm just, I'm just watching how fast he's executing this, which I'm super impressed with. Yeah. Yeah. He's not playing around. Oh, he, he, it seems like he clearly has his, as strange as this might sound as proud as he understandably is about Twitter. It seems like this, he feels like this is his life's calling to do this. I mean, that's that's sort of the approach that it, it's a humanity thing. I yes. mean, if you really manage the DeFi communications, yeah. finance, I'm sorry, decentralized communications, finance, governments, uh, he's Jesus. Yeah, it's it, well, this is this is it, Tyler. We spoke about this with Dave McKinty and all these other people about how he has this vision and he's just charging forward. He's really not letting he's like in his zone. Right. You know, this has this has nothing that. to do with making money for himself necessarily. This is building a public service global good for the especially what he feels for the developing world. And it's a uh, similar to building Wikipedia where you're building something that it's a nonprofit and Jimmy Wales, while he charges money to speak as a as a public speaker at tech events. Um, you know, he, he doesn't really directly monetize from Wikipedia. He built it as a big gift to humanity. And this is, a, you can think of this as a potential similar scenario that he's doing this. He feels like this is his life work. He's even said uh, that this to him is more important than, you know, Twitter or, you know, anything else that he's working on that if he could, he would focus all of his attention on it. Yeah. It sounds like he's really looking. How, how old is Jack Dorsey? What age is he? Well, now he's about 43. 44, 43. So he's moving into he's moving into later in his life. Maybe he's also beginning to look at contribution and also legacy. Right. Because, you know, this is something super important. Once you start getting a certain age, you know that, God forbid, you're going to, right. we're going to all die someday. Right. So maybe this is way, his also way of leaving a legacy. Right. He says, um, 
that Bitcoin-based Lightning Network is solving issues of scalability when it comes to the payments, but that similar infrastructure is required for exchanging assets like stable coins, which are tokens designed to hold said price. He put out a call for current projects that could help solve any current gaps in infrastructure for building TBD, which he said would be fully open source and with open protocol. No foundation or governance model that TBD controls, permissionless or bust. So they're going for it. They're going for the full permissionless decentralized can't shut it down even if you want to mr putin mr g mr you know whoever's running america at that moment um they're they're trying to build this is what's missing from satoshi's bitcoin og vision which was a, a glorious vision but this vision of bitcoin and uh, we now realize uh would would be enabled by an ability for people to exchange bitcoins and and other uh, you know you need an exchange but you need a satoshi like bitcoin like truly decentralized permissionless exchange which is what they're building and so this will basically help manifest satoshi's vision for bitcoin tyler yeah this is interesting though as well because when you start looking at the whole decentralization of the financial monetary system i mean this is also where we were talking, Faraz and I, we, a question came up over the weekend as well in terms of decentralization when it comes to just how, to, how itself AI will play a role in it too. Because at some point, artificial intelligence is going to be able to do a lot of the, a lot of the work that traders and analysts are doing today because it's going to have enough data. But how do we keep it um, honest would be the decentralization of the blockchain that it would be put on. Because then my roommate and I, she, she's uh, at one of the top universities here in Holland that's working on financial modeling, the new financial models, economic models. And we were talking about it because her one concern and skepticism was, okay, well, then how do you stop the nefariousness if AI does heavily go into that space? And that would be decentralization. So if you imagine you have Jack Dorsey's DEX, and then now you have AI with Jack Dorsey's DEX, you pretty much have a, a recipe for something really nice. Because now you have the decentralization, which brings fairness, and you have AI that brings the swiftness of the algorithms and the, the myriad of information and data it could pull in to do trades. You now have like a mega system. Yeah. So the next, now that we've only covered the first two biggest articles at the moment. Number three is from Protocol about an interview with Apple engineer named Cher Scarlett, who has become the face of the Apple II movement, although you'll see in a moment, I, I don't know how big of a movement it really is, but uh, the journalist certainly wants to uh, help lend some um, momentum by writing this article, of course, a group that wants to shed light on workplace issues at Apple. So when, against, it says, how one woman helped build the Apple II movement at tech's most secretive company. Against the odds, a collective worker movement has started to emerge at Apple. Here's how the de facto face of the movement is dealing with the internal company hate and why she feels it's worth it. And it's a very long story. I will share it out now. But basically... Uh, what I think the main interesting stat is they say they've now had 500 team members um, share their story of um, 
unfairness or or mistreatment or abuse or and uh, now she's revealing that basically she's being socially um ex exercise uh, what's the word i'm looking for excommunicated <laughs> and from a catholic perspective or kind of being silent getting the silent treatment internally because while she might have 500 people within apple and maybe Sid, you might Sid might know the current headcount at Apple just for context, but I imagine it's in the not counting Apple Store team members. I imagine it's in the what fifteen ish, twenty ish, twenty thousand ish. So five hundred. She might have a lot more haters than fan you know fans at this point with the, with the apple II movement but her her intention is her her main complaint is um well let me let me let let's use her own words so i don't mis misrepresent it says there's this culture within apple that is very rewarding of secrecy and loyalty and that's we can pause right there and say that's very true and that's very well known Ever since kind of the beginning, Apple is notoriously, incredibly secret driven and um, and incredibly loyal. And you could, anyone who spends any amount of time in the Bay Area knows that when you go to backyard barbecues and you meet people from Google and they tell you what they're working on and, and then you talk to someone from Apple and they just are very tight lipped about what they're doing. They don't even like to say they work at Apple <laughs> like and you will never get any kind of information out of them ever, never, never. That That is in the history of Apple really never happened. All the Facebook, uh, Twitter, Google, all. Oh, Jesus, they'll tell you all kinds of stuff that the half the time they shouldn't be telling you. Apple, no, that doesn't happen, just as an example. And everyone knows this. So Apple is very notoriously, very and, high. And on. actually, Tyler, yeah. I know a guy who works at Apple, and he didn't even know what he was uh, interviewing for during mm -hmm. the hiring mm -hmm. process. Great point. Apple is highly secret secretive within itself. There's, I mean... Even inside the company, people don't know what other people in the company are working on. And it's by design. Like you, only the people who are critical to that particular mission or project or initiative are in on it. And no one else in the company is. So you have lots of little pockets of information and they intentionally don't. They're very careful about uh, people who aren't critical to the project be becoming even aware that it exists. So, um, loose yeah. lips sink ships. Yes, that's their whole. They've been that way from the beginning. So, and I think it led. It was stemmed from um, Steve Jobs' uh, healthy paranoia in relation to Microsoft in the early days, and you know, just wanting to make sure the the cool stuff they were working on didn't get out because they're true innovators. They were truly creating and pushing the 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 space. And when you're truly creating and pushing the space, you don't want people to know what you're working on because you're the one truly doing the innovation, you know. So um, that's sort of where I believe it stems from. So anyway, the, the, there's a culture within Apple that's very rewarding of secrecy and loyalty. Yep, you got that right. And when I have read some of these posts about me, it's very much seeping through. People are feeling that I'm le leaking confidential data because she's talking about internal stuff at Apple which is a huge no-no culturally at Apple. Um, and while the a Apple II 
is not a union per se. The group's website says it wants to use the power of collective movement to bring attention to the hundreds of Apple workers who have long felt invalidated by the company. Scarlett, who had a well-known online presence in the software world even before she became an Apple worker, is the group organizer who has spoken the most publicly and who publicly led the effort to create the informal pay equity survey against Apple's wishes. Apple did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Yeah, because they're a secrecy privacy company. They're not going to comment on this kind of stuff. Uh, Silly journalist as you are. So the tech workplace movements are not a new trend. In January, Google employees formed the Alphabet Workers Union, which, while unrecognized by the National Labor Relations Board, has already led several successful campaigns for changes in the workplace. And the Alphabet Workers Union has aligned itself with the communications workers. While the power dynamic has clearly started to shift from companies to workers in the tech industry more broadly over the last year. Yeah, there's truth to that. A July protocol survey of the tech industry found that nearly half of respondents were interested in joining a union that changes that change was not immediately evident at Apple. Apple culture is notoriously secretive and workers have long history of refusing to speak to the press or social media about company products. Right, because you will be instantly fired even for talking to press, even if you don't reveal anything. In the past, some workers have come forward internally to express their anger, report issues, or work together to make change. For one example, uh, one woman in 2016 wrote an email to CEO Tim Cook about her about jokes her coworker we're making about rape, but very little collective action has been has made its way to the public eye. And so what she's pointing out is this secrecy within Apple creates an environment where it's challenging to reveal um, misappropriate behavior. Which makes sense. It's a highly secretive com- company and nothing gets, you know, nothing comes out, nothing leaks out. So how are you supposed to uh, deal with, you know, when a coworker says something inappropriate, what, you know, she's making the comment that if something's been done wrong to you, uh, your only resolve is to deal with it with the, the official proper channels inside of Apple, which is, you know, the HR team, which they call the people team and nowhere else. You don't have the normal public court of opinion to tweet about and say, Hey, I was sexually harassed at Apple. And where, at, at Uber that did exist. Some, there was a lady who did go to the press and talked about how she was mistreated at Uber. And that in some ways led to the changing of the CEO at Uber prior to the IPO. And then you have examples of this happening at Google lately with the AI, the ethics AI team, where there was kind of a, a minor meltdown going on there. And these kinds of things that the Apple's kind of Fort Knox like um, securities around information inside Apple getting out prevent just uh, uh, people who feel they've been uh, wronged from letting that information out. It's all kept internally. And if they don't agree with your assessment that you were wronged in Apple, then it doesn't get out. So yeah, I can understand why some people, you know, feel a bit trapped and, and they, they might refer to it as a like North Korea like system or, or author- authoritarian type structure uh, that they're dealing with. So anyway, it's an interesting read. And journalists, you can understand why tech journalists who are not normally big fans of big tech companies like Apple are eager to help promote this kind of a cause inside of a big tech company because journalists always want to know what's going on inside of Apple and are very happy to try and help get that information out of Apple. So um, hence the headline of, you know, this is the 
uh, Apple Apple II movement. It's not a movement. It's like a couple of people in the company who made a website. Uh, I would hardly call it a movement. And make no mistake, this will Apple is masterful at uh, putting out the fires of you know these type of internal fires. So this will likely fade away um, in the near future because they have a long history of, uh, of experience and the skills to um, kind of put the, the appropriate uh, water on the flames to kind of make these kind of problems go away. So, but the tech... Just journals... as long as you're holding their phones right. <laughs> yeah, grip up on the phone. It's a little internal Apple joke there that Chris made. Choke up on the phone, he said. So the next one is... <laughs> Uh, China starts this from Bloomberg. China starts a two month campaign to crack down on websites and social media accounts that post financial information that, quote unquote, maliciously badmouths the economy. China kicks off a two month campaign to crack down on commercial platforms and social media accounts that spread financial misinformation, perhaps analogous to what America is doing with medical misinformation where if you're doing medical misinformation you might become responsible as a platform the governments are kind of hinting wink wink nudge nudge that if you got too much covid misinformation we might actually start holding you responsible so tyler i'm concerned we're in the midst of a global asset bubble essentially with capital having flight overseas Uh, is this basically uh, uh, when should i report to prison for saying this so China, so it says the initiative will focus on rectifying violations, including those that maliciously badmouth China financial markets and falsely interpret domestic policies and economic data. <clears throat> I don't think the party's responding well to this. Yeah. The Cyberspace Administration of China, the CAC, said in a statement late Friday those who republish foreign media reports or comment, meaning retweet. So you, a, a retweet. Oh, crap. Yeah. Those who republish tyler you're screwed yes so, so, <laughs> uh, foreign media reports or commentaries that falsely interpret domestic financial topics with without taking a stance or making a judgment will also be oh even if you don't make a stance wow without taking a stance or making a judgment will also be targeted it says so a retweet you don't even have your own position you're simply reposting as this is what it says then you will be targeted. The move is aimed at, because you're spreading the misinformation. The move is aimed at cultivating a benign online environment for public opinion that can facilitate, quote unquote, sustainable and healthy development of China's economy and society, according to a statement. It followed a draft proposal. Or, so I, I, we have to imagine, I think it's incredibly safe to imagine oh, that no. this, this is a response to recent weeks where a lot of publications in the West are saying China's stock market is melting down as they crack down on big tech cut the capitalism of china's over you we've all seen those headlines and some of the there's some truth and some mis uh misinformation that they are slight at times misinformed about what's actually going on and no doubt that really pisses china off when they see western media writing stories that aren't totally correct and i've we've called them out here well i'm notably you've heard me get real hot on the mic about Bloomberg's misinterpretations of what's happening in China. And there is a whole lot of... I just have to correct you there. Anything Bloomberg writes about China is actually what's happening in China. So, um, it's... I know what, you know what, Nick, Tyler, we only retweet 
uh, article from Bloomberg. <laughs> but there's a whole lot of speculation about what's China doing. They're cracking down on their golden goose. They're like clipping the wings off the golden goose, which is tech in China. And all these huge tech companies, you know, have been unfettered. You know, they have these massive skyscrapers on the skyline and they're making ungodly amounts of money. Not so different from America, honestly, actually, even even the same scenario, but even slightly more, I would say. And they were largely left unchecked until very relatively recently, starting in about February, when the first crackdown was on AntPay Financial, Alibaba's financial company, was going to do their big IPO, and the IPO got shut down. And then, boy, has it been an incredible snowball of tech crackdown since then. And the question is, what's really driving this? What's really behind this? And it's now caused uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of economic um kind of downfall in on the public markets there with these big tech companies and some companies have lost one company has lost 30 billion i'm the 10 cent notably so and they're not the only one there's several others the ed tech companies collectively make up 100 billion and that just completely disappeared they they but that as we've come to learn is about the birth rate the, and this corresponded and this all adds up when you do the homework when you do the math and they're very clear about it and there was a headline on friday south china morning post even said so i mean and the the smart folks who know what's going on on the ground are very unambiguous about what's going on with regard to there's an incredible focus on fixing the declining birth rate and a lot of the decisions that are being made that are hard to understand until you absorb this on the ground reality that there's a a, a very intense preoccupation on resolving the declining birth rate issue which they, the country, the government of, of China perceives as an existential threat, they need to fix this declining birth rate issue. So they're doing all kinds of interesting things, cracking down on the cost of uh, a baby formula in milk, uh, letting people have two kids and now three kids and subsidizing the third kid and cutting down the cost of education and the cost of housing near the schools and all of the, all of da, 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 da. But... You're starting to see a lot of speculation about what's going on in China. Why, why, why are they cracking down on this? And it's the end. Of, you know, every, all the investors need to get out of China and the, the party's over. Get out. Uh, no more investing in China. It's a bloody mess over there. And China, understandably, is like, you, what are you idiots talking about? Do you not? Why are you writing all these articles? This is financial misinformation. And they want to crack down on this spreading of this financial misinformation. And so now on Friday, the Cyberspace Administration of China says, hey, if you retweet and promote uh, any of this financial misinformation, we are coming for you. So stop stop fanning the fames and, and spreading it. And uh, the question, is, by the way, people in Hong Kong know what I'm about to say next. Because China wrote uh, when uh, during the protests in the past year, it was about 10 months ago. Um, Hong Kong is has a separate legal structure from mainland China. And Hong Kong has kind of freedom of press in a way that China doesn't. They have the open Internet, not the Chinese Great Firewall of China Internet. However, China wrote a new law that basically uh, makes it illegal for people to spread um, misinformation or speak negatively about China, even outside of China. According to their law, 
which of course they only their jurisdiction is China. They can't make laws about what happens in Africa, but they did. Their rule, and that's why Hong Kongers are now being able to be incarcerated and are being incarcerated. Very notably, Jimmy Lai at Apple Daily, one of the, uh, Hong Kong's much loved publications, was writing negative stuff about what's going on in China. They the then the CCP came in and stormed the Apple Daily and shut that thing down and took the uh, founder to prison. And because of the new law, this new, uh, you know, can't say anything negative about China law, even outside of China. So theoretically, according to the same rules that led to the founder of Apple Daily being brought into a, a prison, apply to everybody outside of China, including me. So according to China's this law that they wrote, it applies anywhere geographically on this blue sphere that we live on called Earth. They believe they've expanded the jurisdiction of that particular law internationally so that Chinese citizens, you, if, if you didn't know this, let's dig up the receipts. It's, anyone in Hong Kong knows exactly what I'm talking about because they know they are the most immediately impacted by it. And that was largely why it was created to control the speech of Hong Kongers. But it expands beyond Hong Kong to any Chinese, well, not only Chinese people, but they use this to um, for Chinese citizens living abroad. So that if you say things abroad, if you're a, a Chinese national living in Canada and you say something that, that the state doesn't like, you you violated a Chinese law. Oh, and your parents still live in China? Oh, well, that's too bad. So come on home if you want your parents to ever see your parents again. Oh, and, by, and you're coming home because you violated the Chinese law that we will punish you for. This is what's happening. This is what's now being reported. And the fact there was a report last week that a person was told that their mother or grandmother uh, who needs a, a kidney transplant will not be receiving it until you come home. Or dialysis, rather. So. Um, that's where that new, um, you know, non-Chinese, uh, can't speak negatively about uh, China outside of China law now exists. on an inter And the really amazing part is the internationalization, their internal interpretation of having a jurisdiction beyond their borders, which is, there's the only other example I know of like that is Sweden about a year ago passed a law where Swede, Swedes traveling outside of Sweden if they purchase uh, sexual services outside of Sweden, it's illegal to do so inside of Sweden. It's not illegal to sell it. It's illegal to buy it. That's kind of a unique uh, way that Sweden does it. You can be, anyone can be a sex seller, but you cannot be a sex buyer. And you, the sex buyer is punished. So in, uh, if you're a sex buyer, even outside of Sweden, if you go to Southeast Asia or anywhere in the planet and you buy sexual services outside of Sweden, when you come home, then you will be punished if it's known that you did it outside. So that, that's, again, the only other example I know of, of, of a country enforcing its laws internationally. So How are they going to enforce? Like they, do, they will not allow Tyler to go Hong Kong. If you go Hong Kong, they will detain you. It, it, anyone who they feel violates their, you know, can't talk bad about China law anywhere. Once, yeah, uh, if they, 
they, once you're back in their jurisdiction, then they can do whatever they want. Yeah. So Tyler, you realize that the United States does that too, right? Yeah. Like I, the United I, States I, law applies abroad. I, like for us citizens. If you commit a, an, a crime that only exists in America in a country where that crime doesn't exist. Do we know of an example of that? Yeah, I guess I guess Julian Assange like might fall under sex, that. Sex trafficking is easily covered under that. If you mm-hmm. did aspects of insider yeah, but that, or securities laws that are only governed in the United States, and you but did John, abroad, it would still do, doesn't the, the the sex slavery would also be illegal wherever you did it, and that's why you're really uh, found guilty. I I didn't say sex slavery. It's just like again, like age of consent dif- would differ. You're still be you'd still be. Uh, violating it under U.S. law, like that's the U.S. law applies to citizens largely abroad. Like it's generally a bad idea to commit things that you can't do in the United States abroad. Like you could still be prosecuted. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this if if the age of drinking alcohol in Europe is you know thirteen and you're fourteen and you drink alcohol in the it's UK still when you illegal. It's still illegal. You right. Just, but... It's just you're not going to get prosecuted because prosecutorial discretion. But you could still be prosecuted. And are, do we know of uh, interesting examples of that? Of I, like prosecuting a kid? No, no. I mean, again, prosec- it's prosecutorial discretion. Like it's just like it's if someone wants to. If there's like a, a, if there's a U.S. attorney that's being an asshole, yeah, you know, he could he could raise the case, you know, to settle it and all likelihood. These things don't. But I think don't, if you have a good lawyer, your lawyer would say, uh, "Your Honor, my client in the in the country where lose. they did it, it wasn't illegal in the country where they did it at the time. They'd still lose." You think so? I guess we have to look 100%. at the letter of the law on that. I mean, there, there'd probably be some exceptions, like, but they'd lose. I think your the lawyer would say the the American law doesn't have jurisdiction in, you know, where whatever country they were in at the time they did it. I don't know. I, we need a lawyer to comment on that, but it could be. I, I'm, but I think we would know of ex- more. There would be more plentiful examples of Americans. Uh, as, uh, they would they would make a high profile example of that that Americans themselves would be more familiar with. Um, so it kind of relates to the next article. Honestly, the next one's from Reuters that filing in Attorney General's lawsuit against Google. The Play Store hit revenues of $11.2 billion in 2019 with $8.5 billion in gross profit and an, uh, and an operating margin of over 62%. So this is just information kind of coming out of the legal documents in the file, the, the attorney general's filing against Google. <clears throat> they re- we're getting new information that pu- we didn't know publicly about Google's Play Store and how much money this store makes. And this is kind of interesting because this is this is one of the biggest lawsuits in tech at the moment, which is Google's Play Store and Apple's App Store. And um, how much money are those stores making? Nobody really knew. And now we do. So it says in, in the in the attorney general's lawsuit against Google, the Play Store hit revenues of 11 billion in 2019. So we can imagine that's even much higher now. And by the way, they don't have a lot of costs in managing those play stores. I mean, they have a lot of algorithms and no doubt a bunch of humans checking the apps that get put into the store. The question is, uh, out of that, well, they say the, the margins with $8.5 billion in profit. So it's almost all profit. So they, they made $11.2 billion 
and and it costs them two billion in cost to make that. So they're profiting eight point five billion uh, on the Google Play Store. And what this is is people put their apps in the Google Play Store and in the Apple App Store, and they're making uh, more than ten billion dollars a year, eleven billion dollars a year off of these stores. That's that's no chump change. And now you know why they, that's a a, a a key business for them. And they're about to lose it. That was the headline on Friday. The biggest headline of all of last week was Apple just basically settled with this class action lawsuit of developers who were saying, fuck your store. You're, you, this is bullshit. I, why are you forcing me to be in your app store? I am Adobe. I make Photoshop. All of our fans want to download our app directly on your phone. We make an iPhone app for Photoshop. Why can't they download it from our website? Just like they do on their laptops with our regular Photoshop app for their laptops. This is bullshit because the app store is taking a 30% cut of the payment. And Spotify is saying this is bullshit. They should be able to just download our Spotify app on their phone, just like they do on their laptop. And Epic Games, who makes Fortnite, and there's a whole this whole class action of apps who are saying, enough with this nonsense. This is totally bullshit. You're screwing us over, forcing yourself into this equation and taking 30%. And Apple says, okay, fine, you're right. You can now download directly. Because they know they're going to lose that lawsuit, by the way. And there's a separate lawsuit with Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, who's not giving up. They're still charging ahead. They want to break this whole App Store monopoly or duopoly because there's two of them, the Apple App Store and the Google App Store. And I've been saying here for a couple of weeks now, ever since Epic initiated this lawsuit, I think Apple and Google are going to lose these lawsuits. And now the fact that Apple's caving in and saying, OK, OK, make it stop. OK, fine. We'll let you do the downloading indirectly. Or sorry, they're not they're not saying that they're saying that the app developers can now tell the the user that's you and me how they can pay directly. You're allowed to now tell your customer, oh, you downloaded our free app. That's great. If you'd like to upload, if you'd like to pay for the, the, the unlock the pro version of this app, you can pay us now directly. You don't have to pay Apple through Apple Pay or, you know, with their the credit card you have on file with the App Store. You can now give us your credit card and we will charge you for, to unlock the pro features of this app directly. So Apple no longer gets their 30% cut, which Spotify most of all loves because it's a monthly subscription, right, of, you know, $13 a month so or $12 a month. So now Spotify gets 30% more money than they used to from all of their, I don't, what is it, 200 million subscribers. That's a lot of cake. That's a lot of cash. And that we always wondered how much money are these app stores actually making? And now we have the answer. They made $11.2 billion in 2019. It's no doubt it's way more now, maybe double. And the, how? And as I said, a lot of that's profit because there's very little cost in maintaining those stores. And apparently they're claiming they had about one, uh, two, about $2 billion in, in costs of running the store, $8.5 billion in profit. Holy shit. Go ahead, Amy. Tyler, the one thing that is interesting is that this has been a growing uh, cash cow for them because ever since like Adobe and Macromedia and all of these graphic companies have made themselves subscription services, if you imagine that all of those subscription services also have pro and premium plans inside the Apple Store as well. So like if I go to Adobe, there's Adobe Creative Cloud and you could either purchase it by month or by year and it does show their subscriptions inside the Apple Store when you go to pay for it. 
So it's a very interesting dynamic because there's more, there's more softwares you're not even mentioning. So I would even say that they're definitely afraid to lose that cash cow because it's a very, I mean, it's like passive income. It's like affiliate marketing on a, on a global scale because basically now Adobe has got their products inside the Apple store. It's a bit like Amazon having products from other people, like brands putting their stuff on Amazon and Amazon being able to sell it for them. People are putting it on those platforms because they want to see their product be seen by by people to purchase. But Adobe and Spotify don't need people because those products are kind of like household names. So Tim Sweeney, who's the CEO of Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite and other massive games, took to Twitter to say about this uh, article, uh, the newly unsealed consumer Google class action complaint. So that's why we're able to get this data now, because this, this is now a public court document. Uh, the newly unsealed consumer Google class action complaint refers to internal calculation that Google's Play Store's costs could be covered by a 6% commission, yet Google Play charges developers 30%. So why are they charging 30% when they could charge 6%? Well, because it's their app. It's their device. It's their app store. And they're going to charge whatever they feel like they can charge. I mean, if you built a bridge between two islands, you would charge whatever you could charge yourself. If you built a bridge, if you don't like it, swim across. Fuck you. So that's why they're charging 30%, even though they could do it for 6%. And this is going to, the timing of this, the fact that these lawsuits are now happening at a time when Europe and America and pretty much everywhere are want to crack down on big tech and their kind of monopolistic like tendencies. This is just really bad timing for Apple and Google to be facing these app store duopoly issues because the governments are looking for ways to kind of restrict their monopolistic tendencies. So this is just going to this is not looking good for Google and Apple app store hegemony. And, and it's kind of sweet timing for filing these uh, class action suits against them, claiming that they're abusing their monopoly positions. So the next biggest headline, shall we, is new research suggests the Internet is not making people who engage in political discussions online more aggressive, but makes their behavior more visible. Well, obviously, it's making it more visible. Um, but now, I guess the more interesting aspect of that revelation is that it's not making people more aggressive. New research is certainly making me more aggressive. New research suggests that the internet is not responsible for making people become more aggressive when engaging with political discussions online. Um, many people feel that the internet is not a safe place to discuss politics. Users who want to discuss contentious issues would be would much rather do it face-to-face -face with others. An often used idea in both media and research behind this is that feelings of anonymity behind the computer screen turn some users into trolls with little empathy for other discussion partners. However, this argument is not true according to researchers at Aarhus University. And Aarhus is kind of the main cool, smart university out of Denmark, by the way. There are many psychological reasons why we might have a harder time controlling our temper online, says Alexander Bohr from the Department of Political Science at the University in Denmark. We do not see the faces of those we are arguing with, and the fast-paced written form of communication can easily lead to misunderstandings. Yet we know from psychological research that not everyone has a personality that is equally disposed to aggression. In the end, these personality differences turn out to be a much stronger driver of online hostility. The study found that those who are hostile in political discussions on the internet report to be just as hostile in political discussions face-to-face. -face. 
These individuals have dispositions that make them crave recognition and status and motivate dominant and aggressive behavior and both online and offline to not lose a discussion. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling personally attacked here. So the, the research follows studies with over 8,000 Americans and Danes who were surveyed about their experience and behavior in political discussions that occurred either online or offline, despite the differences in political institu- institutions and levers and levels of political polarization, status seekers in both countries were primary culprits behind political hostility, both online and offline, the researchers said. Our research shows uh, that the reason many people feel that online political discussions are so hostile has to do with the visibility of aggressive behavior online. Online discussions occur in large public networks, and the behavior of an internet troll is much more visible than the behavior of this same person in an offline setting. Says Michael Bang Peterson, professor of political science at Aarhus University. There you go. We cannot remove online hate through education because it is not born out of ignorance. Hostile people know their words hurt, and that is why they use them. Our research suggests that this is necessary to describe what is okay and what is not okay for each specific discussion page and to police norms, for example, by using moderators. This is a democratic problem, given that social media plays a larger and larger role in political process. What an interesting finding. So the next one is, let me tweet that out for those who want to share that with their uh, very hot, hot politically minded uh, friends and relatives. So the uh, next. Justin? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think Justin's fantastic, but I, I imagine, um, I think it's prob. I think their finding is. I assume it's correct that people actually behave similarly online and offline, and we assume we, that online is more toxic, and because we're more easily exposed to these hot-headed types, it's just to get, they're more visible. Yeah, and please remind Justin never to step into Hong Kong and China. Am I- <laughs> um, but I think he's. I, I don't think of Justin as a hothead at all. I think generally he tries to calm people down. Um, so anyway, the next biggest article, I think we've covered the top four or five. The next one's from Bloomberg that South Korea is expecting to be the first country to pass a law to prevent app stores from mandating first party in app payment systems. Assembly vote on on today, August 30th is likely and apple and google are shitting themselves absolutely diarrhea just spreading all over apple campus and google campus as we speak because if south korea voting today and south korea is now about 3 p.m in korea so we can expect the outcome of this vote probably while we're in this room in the next hour is uh, let's read the article south korea is expected to become the first country to pass a law ending apple and google's domination of payments in their mobile platforms setting a potentially radical precedent for their lucrative app store operations anywhere from india to the u.s let me explain apple's only able to enforce their 30 percent tax of all financial transactions in their app stores because they have an exclusive of how you make the payment you have to pay through they hold your credit card. Apple has your credit card if you have an Apple account. So does Google. If if you join the App Store, you need to show your credit card. And 
So when you go to make a payment inside of an app that, that you downloaded from their app store, you're making that payment through that credit card you have on file with them. They have a monopoly on the payment gateway. So Korea is uh, making this new law that they're voting on today, which is likely to pass, which will say, ah, you cannot have, you must give other payment options to the user to pay for the app that they want to upgrade on. The, I want the pro version of Tinder. I want Tinder Gold. And Tinder Gold costs, I don't know, $10 a month. And yeah, today, you have to use the credit card you have on file with Apple or Google. And now Tinder's a, will, uh, the, Korea is going to force the issue that you mu there must be other payment options, meaning directly to the app maker. So Tinder can charge you directly. Again, what we were talking about before, these same lawsuits that are happening in the U.S., but Korea is doing it in a much more expeditious manner, just saying, no, it's against, it will now be illegal to only have your monopoly of one payment option. Apple and, uh, Apple and Google, the effective duopoly controlling most of the world's smartphones, face a raft of legislative measures in the U.S. rebuking their gatekeeper control and urging a curb on the power to dictate terms on app marketplaces. Both charge a fee of typically 30% on purchases made through their stores and exclude alternative payment handlers. Yes, they exclude any alternative payments, arguing this protects users from fraud and privacy evasion. Yes, that is what they argue. Now, Korea's government is taking direct action to end that dominance. The Telecommunications Business Act would mandate giving users a free choice of app payment providers. The bill, which is almost certain to pass an assembly vote today, like right now, like this hour, uh, given the ruling party's superior supermajority, opens the door for companies like Fortnite maker Epic Games to transact directly with users and bypass the platform owner's charges. Exactly. Epic has taken the iOS and Android owners to court in various jurisdictions, arguing their fees are unfair. This could presage similar actions elsewhere, uh, says one analyst who specializes in digital consumer platforms. Regulators, lawmakers, and litigators in North America and Europe are also scrutinizing apps for billing rules and overriding political mood has become hostile to the enormous amount of power concentrated in the hands of tech giants. Exactly as I said right before we read this article, is the governments are already looking for ways to uh, punish the monopolistic tendencies of these stores. And boy, they just found the perfect one to penalize. So these app stores are fucked. This is why I've been saying for three weeks now, when Epic filed the lawsuit, they're going to lose this. I think the app stores are going to get burnt hard. They're going to lose. And now they are losing. And they might officially lose in the next 30 minutes in a, in a vote in the South Korean government. Because if Korea, if Korea passes this, other countries are going to be like, oh, shit, why didn't we think of that? And you will have a domino-like effect, just like we see in India of forcing the tech companies to put boots on the ground and offices on the ground and compliance officers on the ground and data centers on the ground. And the rest of the country is like, oh, shit, why didn't we think of that? And so Russia now is also doing exactly the same, forcing all of the big American tech companies to have offices, boots, data centers on the ground that they can control geographically. So these countries watch each other, how they're dealing with big tech, who they see as this formidable foe uh, of kind of, you know, power of big tech. And now they see when countries and, and governments are able to get the upper hand. And this is a great example. Korea is going to pass this. And oh, boy, it's diarrhea all over Google and Apple campuses as they await the outcome of this vote, because they know if when Korea passes this, 
there's this will happen very quickly in a domino like fashion elsewhere. Bye bye app stores. Well, not the app stores, the monopoly of controlling the payment uh, through in those app stores. So, but this is, as we just read, $11 billion for Google and somewhere in the same neighborhood, maybe even more for Apple. And maybe even more because that was 2019. And we know there's way more App Store activity in 2021 than there was in 2019. So who knows? $20 billion a year for each of them, which is not actually existential threat level of money for them. But that's, that's still significant money for them. But the one how they're responding to this is quite interesting. They still there's two issues. There's the money that they take that 30 percent tax, which is, is likely to go bye bye now. And of course, the app, the app companies love that. The apps are like, oh, thank God. Spotify is like, holy shit. Now we finally get the full amount of the subscription that we're charging people and all the game developers. This is 30 percent more revenue for them. Boom. This, I think every um, app developer's uh, stock's going to go up. Yeah, of course. Technicals have already Spotify, baked it in. Spotify stock has to go up as a result of this. So the other point is, um, and I say that as a Spotify shareholder. Thank you very much. But the next one is that uh, the app stores, there's two issues. There's the money and then there's the data. And so the app stores, as much as they are going to, you know, are shitting themselves over losing those billions because they're losing their monopoly of charging the payment system, they still are thinking, oh, sweet God, uh, let's at least keep all of the apps in our app store so we get all of that sweet, sweet, juicy, juicy data about who, how, who, how many apps are getting downloaded and how often they're getting downloaded and who's getting downloaded and all they want to control. Uh, that's control. That's a lot of important and a lot of control. And they really don't want to give that up. And if they had the choice between the 30% money of the, of the transactions and keeping themselves entrenched as the gateway of the data, they would rather give up the money than the data. So it's not a complete loss the app it's not the end of the app stores there will still be app stores but they're going to uh then they're really going to want to try and keep everybody in their walled garden of of an app store because that's a lot of data because now you can force the developers for example if chris makes a dating app i can tell chris hey chris that's great you want to be in our app store right yeah there's no you don't have to you can charge your customers directly that's fine you can get all the money yourself. We're not going to take the 30% tax anymore. But here's all these other things you have to do now that you're in our app store. You have to use Apple login as an option to let your customers log into your app so that we get a, a whole lot of extra, you know, it's just a, it's a complete data. I don't want to use the word rape, but it's like a, it's a real, we, we get all up in your game with regard to the data of your app. We're going to force you to use our login system as a, as an option to log into your app and we get access to everything from your app. And boy, that all of that data in aggregate is uh, incredibly vital to their ecosystems. So they really, that's what they're, it, it doesn't look like they're going to lose that. They might, the governments might say, you know what? You have to make it really easy to have direct downloads. What's called sideloading is the, is the nomenclature internally, but direct downloading of apps between developers and users, and that's that's what they really fear, uh, even more than losing the the payment monopoly. So uh, let's see what how, there's bound to be an update. We we meet again in this room. We do this twice a day. We're going to meet again. I mean, we still have another 
hour or two in here and then we take like a five hour break and then we meet again when we meet again next time we will have the outcome of this um uh vote for sure because it'll be nighttime uh in in korea in fact it'll be like 10 p.m when we meet again 10 p.m korea time it, meet again and tyler what this really touches on is it's kind of similar to the robin hood and i know they're different areas but apple gets to see essentially order flow right they can see what apps are hot um, they can see individually, uh, you know, personal trends, you know, demographic trends. You're right. This data was actually the the castle that they were protecting oh, totally. with the App Store. Oh, totally. So then, by the way, somebody uh, tweeted out um, Owen Williams, who is the he's he works at Shopify. And he tweets out on this headline uh, that we just read about the South Korean courts. He says, would love to see this open the floodgates for other countries to follow. Yeah, no shit. That's exactly what's going to happen. Payments, competition on app stores would probably cause another app boom. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. More The idea of making apps becomes more attractive to more people. More business models are enabled. There's some apps that won't work in a store where you have to pay a 30% tax that it's it, it kind of some startup concepts and ideas that some people had just are not feasible with a 30% tax so there's this will enable some business and and apps that previously didn't exist because you need that 30% margin um in some business models so anyway the next headline is well there's somebody else tweeted about this this should set precedence if this happens google and apple could start charging developers a platform fee or some other way of recurring monetization to recoup a loss well they already do they charge a hundred dollars per year just to be a developer on their platforms um and that price could go up you as a as an app developer for apple and um they charge this hundred dollar a year fee and you get access to all of the beta versions of the app. All of the developers right now are using iOS 15 beta 6, for example, uh, which everyone, you know, it's going to become the official version next week that everyone will download. And you need access to those beta versions of the app to test your app on the new iOS 15 before everyone else downloads iOS 15. And you pay $100 a year to get access to all of this internal tools and beta versions of the apps and etc. So that that on that annual fee of being a developer for apple is likely who knows it could be 500 bucks uh so that could be very interesting so the next one is um bloomberg's uh, tech uh guru mark german says he has sources that apple watch 7 will uh, is coming out likely to be included in the september 14th iphone 13 announcement event almost certainly and that the Apple Watch Series 7 will have flat-edged design with one millimeter bigger in both versions. So instead of 40 millimeter and 44 millimeter, they're both going up one millimeter to 41 and 45. And it won't have the rounded bevel edges anymore. It'll be a flat, perfectly flat screen like your phone, which is nice for your finger. And multiple new watch faces to take advantage of the larger sizes. And with the flat screen and the one millimeter extra increase in size, it feels notably bigger. And I have to say, it looks a whole lot better 
and um, I'm tweeting that out so you can get a little looky-loo for yourself. So that was an easy one. The next one is from Benedict Evans, who used to be at Andreessen Horowitz, and now he's kind of just writing a newsletter, a very popular tech newsletter. And his latest letter has become quite viral. That's why it's like the eighth biggest uh, item today. And it says, many internet privacy proposals circulating today are in direct conflict with those that increase market competition as they would further entrench big platforms. And he has an interesting point. Uh, the consumer internet industry spent two decades building a large, complex, chaotic pile of tools and systems to track and analyze. And... In, uh, what people do on the internet. And we spent the last half decade arguing about that, sometimes for very good reasons, and sometimes with strong doses of panic and optimism. Uh, now, that's mostly going to change between unilateral decisions by some big tech platforms and waves of regulation from all around the world, but we don't have any clarity on what that would mean or even quite what we're trying to achieve. And there's a lot of unresolved questions. We are confused. And it's, uh, as usual with, with Benedict, it's, uh, or Ben, it's, uh, it's not actually not that long of a blog post, but it's, it's quite deep. And so I will tweet this one out, but the synopsis is privacy is coming to the internet and cookies are going away. That's true. This is long overdue, but we don't know what will happen next. Very true. We don't have much consensus on what online privacy actually means, and most of what's on the table conflicts fundamentally with competition. And what he's implying is, even though um, the, basically the, the powers that be, which is largely Google and Apple and Facebook and whatnot, are shifting the chairs on, on, on the uh, uh, cruise ship, in a way that is basically to their advantages, and that's hardly a surprise or a headline. Um, but it's with regard to how they are dealing with privacy and cookies and tools and the removal of cookies, and they've become much smarter at data in ways that at times seem to be the advantage of the user, but is really in their advantage. And the, the cookie is a great, easy, simplified example where Google's saying, you know what? We're, we're doing away with cookies. You win, everybody. Cookies are bad. We're getting away with them. And people are like, well, this is strange. Why is what's going on? Um, well, it's really because uh, Google and, and Apple don't like the fact that Facebook is making um, uh, a, a nice business out of cookie data, and a lot of other people are, and they want to monopolize the power of the data that they themselves are generating on their platforms. And so they're kind of kicking, creating new structures that um, Google calls flock, federated learning of cohorts. It's an intentionally uh, kind of un unclear term, but they're creating new structures that basically empower themselves in terms of data in some ways benefit the users and they are promoting it as a benefit to the users without really mentioning that it's really intended to benefit themselves and, and, and um, a blow to their competitors like Facebook who um, are not going to have access to this data now. Anyway, so this is Benedict is jumping into that whole topic with this blog post that he did. And as usual, it's very thoughtful and people are sharing it. And that's why it's one of the top stories today. The next one, Apple's clarifications as part of its settlement 
will not make much of a difference in the long run for developers or to how the App Store actually works. And what this article from The Verge is about is Apple came out and said, you know what, we're going to do away with, uh, uh, we're now going to allow app developers to tell their users how to pay directly. And so the subheadline says Apple isn't changing how the app store works because Apple doesn't want it to change. Apple made waves this week by um, coming out and saying, oh, we're settling this class action lawsuit. We're going to Apple uh, by this hundred million dollar settlement with small app developers who sued the company. But despite the changes announced yesterday, nothing is really changing for developers. Apple's app store is too big and too reliant on in-app purchases fees to, for that to happen. Apple settlement includes several new policies that say that says um, developers can now contact customers about alternative payment methods using data collected from their app. Uh, so long as the notification itself is done outside of their apps, which they had previously been barring from doing. Apple promises to keep the App Store small business program, which reduces Apple's revenue cut down to 15%. And it's just another tech blog jumping in this whole issue of direct payments and whatnot. So uh, the next one is uh, from TechCrunch that CryptoPunks, an NFT platform with 10,000 little picture, little picture portraits, has now crossed 1 billion in transaction volume with the cheapest artwork available sale costing $450,000. This is really getting quite remarkable. So CryptoPunks is an NFT, uh, looks like Sarah has your hand up and motivate. And okay, sorry, I missed you guys. That I think everyone knows what CryptoPunks are. You can Google it if you don't. And Ida Luang in the audience has a very CryptoPunk looking avatar as her photo. And that gives you an idea of what they look like. Hers is, is ironically, in fact, not a, a legitimate one of the official 10,000 CryptoPunks, but it sure looks like it. It's very close. Um, they look like they're made with Microsoft Paint from Windows 95. There was They were AI generated. There's 10,000 of them, and they're like digital trading cards. And now, of these 10,000, the cheapest of the 10,000 will now set you back $450,000. Just to give you an idea of how hot these CryptoPunks are as uh, the first kind of They've now been duplicated many, many times with the the bored apes and the stoner cats and you know the the wacky whales and the the silly ass penguins and whatever. There's everyone's duplicating this, and you can understand why, because if CryptoPunks are each worth a minimum of four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and there's ten thousand of them, then you might be uh, financially motivated to duplicate them, and you might come out with a thousand of your own, hoping you could get a thousand dollars a piece and making a, an easy ten million. So, and by the way, Ashton Kutcher just did exactly that. So, with his stoner cats, so that's why this is. And the more that people duplicate and try to duplicate CryptoPunks, the more CryptoPunks is seen as the original kind of uh, innovator in the space, which they correctly are uh, are perceived as being. This was truly a pioneering uh, and will forever be known as the OG NFT art, you know, uh, creation. But boy, $450,000 for the cheapest of the 10,000 and the most expensive of the 10,000 for those who are wondering, well, wh if that's the cheapest, how much is the most expensive? 
I may you might remind me, was it 150 million the most expensive one just went for? Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, there was one that went really, really super, super high as well as from Sotheby's because they had a whole exhibition, exhibition as well. And, and I think that you, what you're starting to see now is a lot of the other, there's like top tier projects like CryptoKitties and CryptoPunks. And then there's second tier projects, which are like the Board 8 Yacht Club and um, the sewer, some of the other sort of projects that have been coming up that have also been showing similar signs. And the Board 8 Yacht Club is the next level of that. And they are, people are flipping them. People are collecting them, flipping them, and they're making tremendous amount of success in doing that. But, of course, that's when the regulators were, are also why they're really on top of that, like, oh, shit, we need a hustle. Because people are doing it, but at some point, you know, they'll have to pay the piper. Yeah. Next headline is looking at 2021 so far, there are now 39 fintech unicorns in Europe, probably 40 by tomorrow. Uh, half of those are from t this year, 2021, which is only we're only three quarters of the way through. So there's been a Cambrian explosion of European fintechs in 2021. Hey, Tyler. Yes. Um, on that list, is Molly on there? I don't know. Let because me... Molly is the payment. Uh, Molly is a payment company over here in Amsterdam that uh -huh. went completely crazy. And okay. I believe it did become a unicorn in the in the context of us being on this stage over the past few months because they've done some other deals. So, and so I know they got some more funding. Ironically, the very next story is related. Separate headlines, separate publication. EU's data protection supervisor recommends that personal data, such as search engine queries, like what you type into Google, and browser history, meaning what pages you go to, should not be used for the assessment of credit scores, which a lot of these new unicorns are using <laughs> your your browser history. Um, Tyler, but that makes a lot of sense because Europe is aging and there's not a lot of like over 60 that are like jumping on the internet, kind of taking selfies and popping it on Instagram. And, you know, being here in Europe, I can clearly see that. You might want to ask Susie about that as well in terms of demographics because Europe is aging faster than other parts of the world. And why would they have that if the person is old school? Because they're not heavily on Instagram, not, not heavily on those apps. And right. actually the bank apps also do it already. So the bank already has that. Yeah. So, but it's interesting now that there's, the last article was EU fintechs are booming, becoming unicorns, 19 this year alone, which is doubling the total of 39. And the next article is UE data protection supervisor says, ah, no more using browser history uh, for the fintechs, basically. <laughs> so it's like, uh, well, do you want uh, a huge batch of fintech unicorns or not? If it's at the expense of them using browser history in calculating um, your credit scores, which a lot of the fintechs are doing. So really interesting that those two headlines came back to back. The next one is from the New York Times. And this one relates to the second biggest story. Sorry. Fourth biggest story of the day. Remember that China... Um, China starts two-month campaign. The number four story was from Bloomberg. China starts a two-month campaign to crack down on websites and social media accounts that post financial information that malic maliciously badmouths the Chinese economy. Remember that? Yeah, well, look at this new headline coming out right now from the New York fucking Times. New York Times headline, Didi, which is China's Uber, 
which grew by moving in a regulatory gray zone before the U.S. IPO became a bellwether for how far China is ready to go in tech, big tech crackdowns. And then the story goes on to talk about how China's cracking down on big tech all over China and this, this causing mayhem on their stock market. And it's time for investors to get out of China. And if you retweet this New York Times article, you, who knows what could happen to you in China? That's what the new rule in China. That was the fourth biggest headline of today was China trying to crack down on articles such as these from the New York Times. That is, This is an article right now. Cause, causing people to question what's going on with China's economy. And as there, as of course, it's an English translation, but it says maliciously bad-mouthing the Chinese economy. Is this New York Times article maliciously bad-mouthing the Chinese economy? I bet they think it does. And so they even said, even if you repost uh, a headline without adding your own commentary to your post, you will be targeted. So uh, it says Didi pushed the limits and and thrived in a legal gray zone until China cracked down. China is leading to that. Didi and other Chinese internet giants grew big powerful when China's government demanded the right hailing service. So let's, I'll bet you there's a a paragraph in here that would, uh, those, here here it is. Um, Those days are over. Uncle Xi Jinping, the Communist Party's most powerful leader since Mao, China has taken a hard ideological turn against unfettered private enterprise. It has set out a series of strictures against disorderly corporate expansion no longer Will titans of industry be permitted to march out of step with the party's priorities and and dictates? Silicon Valley may may not have managed to halt the Chinese tech industry, but Uncle Xi might. On issues like data privacy uh, and worker protections, Beijing scrutiny is long overdue. The United States and Europe also want to tame in early July. There's almost certainly more to come. Here's where you get in trouble, New York Times. And here's where your journalists need to be very careful now. They've already been removed from mainland China. They are now hanging out in Taiwan. And I'm talking about Paul Moser, who is the the tech geek for the New York Times in Asia. Used to be based in mainland China until he was kicked out with all the other Western journalists because they were starting to do reports on the Uyghurs. And Paul himself tried to go do a report on the Uyghurs and was then kicked out of mainland China, which they all have now been. All of them, all of them, all of them, all of them, all of them. Every fucking one of them has been unceremoniously. Oh, you're interested in the Uyghurs? Get the fuck out. (laughs) You are no longer allowed in mainland China. So um, and then they say, ah, but you have no evidence that there's mistreatment of Uyghurs in mainland China. How dare you uh, uh, assert or claim or posit that there's any mistreatment of the Uyghurs? How dare you claim such? You have no evidence. Ah, but I have a question. Yes, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you um, that you were explaining uh, just a while ago, maybe an hour ago, about China's crackdown on edtech has nothing to do with, you know, the technology, but but uh, on Boris Con- well, I mean, uh, growing the population. But then why is the DD and others not being allowed to, you know, to go public in the New York Stock Exchange and stuff if it's just only you know, trying to make things comfortable for, you know, growing the population. What What is the link? That's my question. You want to know about Didi or other companies? They're case-by-case issues. 
No, I'm saying that China is cracking down on tech, like Didi and the others. They were trying all, to get for, for different each you know, go IPO. messy. Yeah. For all of them, yeah. for each, have a very different reason why they're being cracked down on. In the case of Didi, it's because there are cameras and microphones in the cars, and CCP members are in the back seat having phone calls oftentimes saying things that cannot they can't risk that being made public it would be an issue of national concern national security the ed tech companies are being cracked down on because the people of china are saying we're not having kids because it's too expensive to educate the kids with all of these ed tech uh, services that are making billions of dollars two totally separate reasons why they're being cracked down on you understand so if you name a company, I, know, I can tell you why they're being cracked down on. There's no singular yeah. reason why tech companies are being cracked down on. They all have very different reasons why they're being cracked down on. But for an investor, if you look at the totality of all these, you know, different reasons cracking down on tech, they look at it as, okay, well, maybe investors are not welcome. So at the same time, the government is saying, no, 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 we're not doing this. You can't retweet. So for me, it's a, a little bit of a conflict of things, right? If you take them a totality of it, whether it's uh, on the other DDs and others, and then the ad tech for another reason, but then the totality of investors trying to see the China market, then you come up with saying, well, it, it is a little bit is not is is risky to invest in China. So now people totally... are saying, don't get there, right? So I think the Chinese government yeah. are totally telling you that you are not welcome to invest in China. They're not saying that, actually, and they're trying to stop people from saying that. That's what the, the new rule today is about. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so if they, are saying, if they are saying not to say that, we're still open, we're not totally avoiding this. But then, you know, individually, every one of them have a reason for it. But, you know, when you add them yeah. up and then you have no sector left for you to invest in. Yeah. That's all I'm trying to say. They would say there's a whole I mean, lot of sectors. They protected the bonds. I mean, they, they tend to, I mean, the, the Chinese tend to protect foreign interest in bond. I mean, there's, it's a small interest, right, in terms of, like, uh, you know, debt issuances and, and foreign ownership. But, you know, as near as I can tell, like, even when, like, the um, the Evergrande and, oh, God, the, the, the other recent kind of blow up was like, going on, like, the foreign bond ownership in those companies was, was the rights the foreign bond owners was generally protected. So, I mean, there's that. They're not being that aggressively anti-foreign, you know, capital inflows. But anyway, Messi, if you plan to invest in China, it's better to have a Chinese partner. Well, here, and then, well, here's No, the... I'm just trying to understand. I am going to stick around in, in Africa. So, yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to get the whole thing. Yeah. Well, here's, <laughs> here's the next related headline. China, uh, this is from Nikkei Japan. China's online population surpasses 1 billion internet users in shadow of tech crackdown. So they're putting out headlines to remind people that everything's just fine. Thank you very much. Pandemic fuels user growth in e-commerce and digital payments. China has now has more than 1 billion internet users, a government agency said on Friday. And so why would they put that statement out on Friday? Why would a government agency be hot to put out a press release saying, we, we've now surpassed 1 billion internet users? Well, because, and, and go so far as to say, uh, um, 
you know, that they're booming in e-commerce and digital payments and yada, 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 yada. They don't want you to think that the party's over, but there's a whole bunch of the Western media is saying the party's over and they don't want you to say that. In fact, they're now making it illegal for you to say that. And it's true that Westerners don't know why they're doing it, and that's why they're confused. And they think it's just many Western uh, outlets are saying it's just a big power grab. And they're saying it's not a power grab at all. We're trying to do what's best for our people. We're trying to stop. Uh, we're trying to fix the birth rate. And, well, Didi, well, yeah, well, they had a whole bunch of uh, video and audio that we were afraid could, uh, you know, be an existential threat to our, our government. So we had to make sure that never saw the light of day. Uh, but anyways, uh, what you know, other than that, things will they're very confident that things will return and everything's gravy. But I think they're very rightfully worried that the international investors are now spooked and likely to uh, not be so uh, investing in China. And by the way, <clears throat> they did uh, last week now have a new rule that if you are a Chinese company and you want to publicly list outside of China, you have to get a formal approval now. <clears throat> which is interesting. I think they would prefer that if you're a, a international investor and you want to invest in Chinese companies, do it on our exchanges, either the Hong Kong exchange or the Shanghai exchange and do it in our currency. Thank you very much because that's another key focus that they have. So, uh, but that that's an actual headline from right now from Nikkei Asia. China passes 1 billion for the first time, up 8% from 2020. Internet penetration rose 71.6% and delivery services rose 468 million users. So invest in the delivery companies. Because if the state is proud about the boom in delivery services, there you go. Invest in those. The next headline from CNBC, America's kind of big financial TV news network. And it says Amazon partners with Affirm to roll out monthly installments for purchases over $50 to some U.S. customers. Affirm stock rose 30% after hours. I can't wait to see how where it opens Monday morning when the U.S. markets open as an Affirm shareholder myself. It's the buy now, pay later um, uh, that's domestic in America. It's, it was a carbon copy of Klarna out of Sweden, very literally, because the CEO of a firm, Max Levchin, was at an event at, hosted by Sequoia Capital, where all of the CEOs of the Sequoia's companies all meet once a year, of which I used to attend myself. Uh, thanks, I was tagging along Jason, who was a we, we were we were, we were at a startup called uh, Mahalo, where Jason was the CEO, and it was a Sequoia-backed company. And so we got to go to that event. It's fantastic. All the CEOs are there. Klarna is a Sequoia company. The CEO, Sebastian, was there and explaining how they've stumbled on this fantastic business model that's just go growing like gangbusters. And in the audience is Max Levchin, one of the co-founders of PayPal. And he says, oh, that's nice. That's booming in Europe. That's great. 90% penetration. The whole of Scandinavia is using it. That's amazing. Somebody should do that in America. I was a co-founder of PayPal. I know a thing about this. Let's go. <laughs> and now you've got a firm in America, which is publicly traded. And what do you know? They managed to get Amazon as a partner. So now you can, when you're on Amazon, you can buy now, pay later. You can defer payment on that drone you just bought on Amazon. Although maybe not. There's not a lot of drone buying in America these days. But, uh, you know, what that pool noodle that you just bought on Amazon, you, why not? why not make it over four payments? 
And boy, is that a huge, that's the world's biggest client to get. If you're a buy now, pay later uh, enabler to get Amazon, that's the biggest e-commerce site in the West. So Affirm is understandably booming with 30% boost in the stock price after hours. And as a Affirm shareholder, I that's uh, nice, but it would have been great if, you know, if Klarna had got that. But, you know, I can't buy shares in Klarna. So it's a... So mechanically, is Klarna also charging APR? Because I, I had seen a firm on a site I was on earlier, and the APRs are quite high, like in the high teens and stuff. Um, is Klarna also an APR-based um, system? Or? I don't know the short answer on that. I mean, but but when you looked at it, it you know, like to borrow, you know, $30 or whatever for three months it was like only like two dollars so you know oh. when you look at it, it's like cool you know no big deal but when you look at the rate it's really high i'm sarah would could answer that it's around 19 percent if you don't pay if that's the part you mean with the apr it's not by area of expertise but i know they that's of course where a lot of income comes oh so klarna charges you if you don't pay on time but it seemed like a firm was actually just breaking it into installments and adding the APR into the total cost. You do have, I mean, they work, of course, in, a, in the unique way where most pay in time and therefore it doesn't cost. Then, yes, you can choose. Now, these days they've added this, well, it's probably over a year ago, uh, that you can choose the option immediately when you order, which increases that part to put it into installments. And that's where the, I think I just looked it up now, 18.9% in that case. And they also, of course, have started bank and uh, the, technically this becomes a loan. So they, that's obviously goes without saying this is where the money comes in, not on all the free purchases as a, or the free handling as a customer. That's about all my limitation. I have limits on the Klarna. Uh, just like with Tyler, we are very close to them and work a lot together. But uh, that's as much as I know. I'm not in the fintech area. I'll leave that to someone else. By the way, Chris, most people in Scandinavia don't really use Klarna to pay later. It's more the convenience of paying by invoice. Because uh, I see. Sweden runs on invoices. And this is a way f because you want to have accounting. It's due to the, the way taxes work in Sweden. You want to have very clear paper trails of everything and you want to have every everything's run by invoices so it's a very convenient way to pay by invoice essentially exactly and also it's especially for people who don't want to use their credit cards online because we have this system of paying via our banks immediately at this so the second you get the invoice when you order of course also it's good to wait till you get the goods because you always have at least, I think it's at least 14 days free. Uh, so technically, it's exactly as you say, Tyler, the system here. And I think in the Nordics as a whole is set up that way. And then you also have it on record for the tax authorities, etc. Yep. But I know Swedes it, um, hate dealing with, with uh, little receipts. All that. <laughs> <laughs> when they go to a restaurant and yeah, they get a receipt, really they're like, ah, oh, shit. Now I got to take this. Because you have to save it. I got to save it, take it back. Every receipt you get for every payment you do, now you got to go back to the office. You got to staple it to a piece yeah. of paper and submit it to the... They're, they're very meticulous on their accounting. And paying yeah. by invoice makes everything magically much easier. And so that's where Klarna, it was like a godsend. 
And I'll give you another example. It'd be like if it'd be like if you were, and I know, I know a small business owner, if you were like um, only working through QuickBooks, and it just made your life correct like fifteen times easier because correct. the invoice came through QuickBooks. Yes. It was all flagged. You paid through. Right. It. Okay, I get it. And similarly, people uh, like. We work, for example, because you pay by invoice, where if you go to a Starbucks and you buy a cup of coffee, now you got this paper receipt. It's a huge pain in the ass. And so there's a new solution, which is an app that comes out that partners with cafes so that you can pay monthly to sit at the cafe and it converts your coffee purchases into invoices for you. So now you can work from a, a cafe and kind of deduct it and all of that. It's like these very Swedish solutions of converting your purchases into invoices so that it enables it's, it's a, it gets kind of comical anyway. So the next headline is uh, the city of Chicago sues DoorDash and Grubhub for allegedly deceiving customers and using unfair business practices. And what they're referring to is, they say, you know, there's there's this these they keep adding on these little fees, micro fees, and people are getting really pissed off about it. They thought they were going to pay a three dollar delivery fee. And then there's these two other little extra fees added on. And, you know, people understandably get pissed off about that. And then they tell the authorities and then the authorities say, hey, this is bullshit. People thought they were going to pay a three dollar delivery fee. And then it turns out there's a five dollars total. Of, of course, it does say on the on the in the transaction that the serve the delivery fee was three dollars, but now there's this service handling fee of one dollar. What's this nonsense? It's similar to Ticketmaster, how you know if you start adding in secret little fees of handling charges, you know, consumers in America understand get really pissed off about stuff like that. And you start getting yourself in trouble when you start hiding these extra little fees. So gotta knock that nonsense off. The next one is and I'm calling out bad actors. Not I don't. I'm, I have not seen the exact am, examples within DoorDash and Grubhub of this bad behavior, but the city of Chicago seems to think that it exists there. Anyways, I, I'm just quick to point out that any kind of negative, bad, little sneaky behaviors, which apps have done from time to time in this kind of way. Should we even as in this case, I'm with Chicago, if this turns out to be true, because we as app developers, as entrepreneurs need to make sure that other startups are not doing sneaky shit because it paints all startups with a bad brush. If any startups in any category, even though they're a delivery startup, now you've got all of the restaurants and the the cities where they're operating in thinking negatively of startups and we all get painted with the startup brush. And so when any startup like delivery startups are adding sneaky little fees, it even hurts the other startups who are doing other types of startup behaviors. And so it, it makes it difficult for all startups when any startups behave badly. So just like all of Hollywood gets painted with a bad brush it, with, uh, um, who was that, uh, in the Me Too scandal, when uh, what was the the big dude Harvey Weinstein, his bad behavior paints Hollywood with a bad brush, and it, maybe it should. I mean, but it's uh, and it, although it really should, I mean that this is my point is headlines like this paint an image of an industry, and so if there's bad behavior in the tech industry, we as the t people in the tech industry should applaud policing bad behavior of startups like the delivery companies if they're adding in these sneaky charges yeah this 
that's don't do that shit. You're making us all look bad by doing that. So and and Hollywood should say the same to Harvey Weinstein. Like that's painting us bad as a movie industry. Not they should call that shit out too. We should all be self-policing on bad behaviors in our own industry like that. So the next one is from CNBC. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th riot is now demanding records from all the tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Reddit, TikTok, and many others in trying to really get down to the bottom of everybody involved in the January 6th riots. So that's a little update there. And that is the end of the big, boring headlines that your cousin and co-workers will talk about at the next family barbecue. But that now enables us to get into what we're all have been waiting patiently for, which is the fun tech headlines that we've all been finding and tweeting with each other. And um, before we get into those, somebody DM'd me the Hong Kong national security law, which was that law I was referring to that all the Hong Kongers are all too familiar about that China put into place to kind of gag or silence them from saying anything negative about China in any kind of way. And it expands outside of China into another territory and well beyond. It's applicable to every individual in the world. And it's I have now the Wikipedia page. Thank you to Kuo who sent this in. I'm tweeting it out now. You can see it for yourself. On the Wikipedia page, it says, the controversial law has also garnered particular attention to its Article 38, which states that the law is applicable also to those who are not permanent residents of Hong Kong and to those who do not reside there. The provision has been interpreted by some as saying that it is applicable to every individual in the world, including you. I think I'm going to close my bank account there. Including you and me and everybody. And that's what got everybody (laughs) so freaked out is China's from China's perspective. Anyone who says anything negative about China anywhere in the world is applicable. But we are not under their jurisdiction, right? Right. But nor is, um, you know, fair point. I'm I'm not Chinese and I'm not in China. How does this apply to me? And they say, yeah, well, this is just how we're going to do it. If you arrive on our borders, meaning Hong Kong or Macau or um, mainland China, then you will be punished for doing anything they feel you did, you know, against this law, which is you spoke negatively about China. Anyone on stage have funds in Hong Kong? Good luck. I have family there, yeah, my my in-laws. Oh. Okay, behave, Chris. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the next I love China. We all know. We that. all love China. Uncle Xi is so handsome and so smart and so beautiful. We all yeah, for the record. Guy. Hey Xi, we love you, baby. <laughs> so the next uh we're getting into the tweets here that everyone's been twatting out on Twitter since we met last time. And <clears throat> we've got god 20, 24 hours of tweets to get through. We could be here all day. They're endless at this point. So we got to cherry pick out the best ones. And I might miss the very best one. So I want to give anyone on stage, was there a particular tweet that you saw in the past 24 hours that you want to make sure that we cover here? Tyler? Yes. I'm going to tweet one out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin adoption rages on as crypto ATM machine hits yet another Central American country. Which country now? Honduras. Oh boy. Here comes Snowball. It's good. <laughs> I'm just tweeting it out now. As it says, according to Reuter, Reuters. Local firm TG, Reuters. Local firm TGU Consulting Group installed the machine called La Bicorería 
in an office tower in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras. The machine allows users to purchase BTC, Ethereum, using Lempira, the official currency of Honduras. Users will have to scan their official identification and input their personal data, such as phone number, to buy crypto assets. TGU's 28-year-old chief executive, Juan Mayan, says the prior to installation of the machine, Hondurans had no automated way to buy digital assets. You had to do peer-to-peer, look for someone who was willing to do it, meet in person, or carry X amount of cash, which is very inconvenient and dangerous, given the environment in Honduras. So it looks like uh, they're giving also away 30 Bitcoin for free after setting up their account. Pew, pew, pew. So we can now add Honduras to the growing list of LATAM countries embracing Bitcoin. And as as Ame and I, this is our own little conspiracy theory, although we're not alone, we're kind of unique uh, here in, in, in maybe in tech news around the world, but outside, you know, the, I think obviously there's others who agree with us and she has roots there. And I was, I was born on the Mexican border and I'm, I'm spent most of my weekends there growing up. So I'm familiar with how, you know, the, the Latin uh, South American, Central American community kind of looks out for each other in a, and in a geopolitical sort of way. And, it's interesting to see, and by the way, there's just a huge amount of remittances that go, for example, between America and Mexico. <clears throat> that could be, you know, crypto could be an, an amazing solution to reduce the fees in doing that. So, and Tyler, remember yes. who was there? Jack Dorsey. Right. Remember he was there, and Lightning Network is yep. uh, a fast trend. This could saying. be that. That could be a huge part of it. But the the to me the really interesting thing to keep an eye out for is if. Cuba and El Salvador and now Honduras and Mexico and the, these other countries that are starting to ramp up their interest in, in crypto, if they start exchanging with each other and allowing cross-border, you know, Bitcoin transactions between El Salvadorians and Cubans. And that gets really interesting because now you've got a, a shared uh, currency between, you know, the citizens of these LATAM countries. Yeah, Tyler, two days ago, two days ago. Cuba's central bank recognizes cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. That was two days ago. That was on Friday. Cuba will now recognize and regulate cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin in a move being billed as historic for the island nation. Keep, keep going. I'll be back in two minutes. Sure. Basically, going into this article, it says Revolution, Resolution 215 published Thursday in the official gazette says central bank will set new rules for how to deal with digital currencies. Cuba will now recognize recognize and regulate cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, citing reasons of socioeconomic interest. Uh, the central bank will, will set new rules for how to deal with these digital currencies. American, the American embargo on the communist state has turned Cuba into, into a pariah in the global economy. Cuba's decision to join El Salvador in embracing decentralized virtual cash could help the country to circumvent the U.S. sanctions regime, regime. Well, which was dialed up by under former President Donald Trump and has been extended under President Joe Biden. It's historic that they're embracing it, says Boaz Sobrado, a London-based fintech data analyst who spent four years working in crypto in Cuba. Okay. There it goes. Thanks. So, other fantastic headlines? Um, hold on. Yeah. Uh, only El Salvador is uh, so-called declaring that it's a legal tender, right? The rest are not, right? It's just recognizing and regulating, right? Which is what many countries are already doing anyways. Japan has been doing that since 2017. So they're buying, I mean, you can transact in Bitcoin, but it doesn't mean that it's a legal, legal tender, right? It's only El Salvador, right? Yes but or what no? Do, but what does this mean? 
That means only El Salvador is uh, using uh, Bitcoin as one of their legal tender, right? The other countries are not. Cheryl, I believe that's correct. Perfect. I don't think you can pay your taxes in any other country yep. in Bitcoin. Great, great. Yeah, the question is here, as you have some countries going against Bitcoin, like China, for example, um, or others embracing Bitcoin, is that little bit kind of a proxy conflict here? On the digital currency side, those countries, probably the big ones, having their own digital currency, right. and the smaller countries now taking and leveraging the Bitcoin, let's say, size and presence already to actually um, go against that. Tyler, yeah. could I share something about this particular article that I super found fascinating sure. and it shows the power of Clubhouse? The photographer who's a top, who's an NFT artist that I've been talking to and talking about with all his artists and friends that have been, that he's been bringing into Clubhouse and helping them, and the situation in Cuba. And Gabriel Guerra Bianchini has been on this app since. I mean, I've been following his growth in the app. He actually was someone that was interviewed for this article. And he said, you know, he's one of the first artists in Cuba to break into the world of non-fungible tokens or NFTs. So it's a very, very interesting dynamic because they are seeing that it is creating possibility for the generation of the socioeconomic position of Cuba, as well as, you know, they have a lot of talented artists. And he was actually in this article interviewed. Okay. Yeah, I think they should try. There's nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose. Sorry for them. Okay. Can we we'll get into these other headlines? Everyone's tweeting in here. Um, so, Tyler, yes, it's just Sarah. I just had a quick one to add to, even if it's jumping back to when you were uh, talking about the App Store and the uh, lawsuit, Epic Games, yep. etc. And of course, uh, as you mentioned in another room, that Spotify was aligning with them. That's why they are part of this, even right. though it's sweden based not us but the only thing i wanted to add there and tweeted out is that uh seeing and you were also mentioning countries to follow that uh, in i don't know if you already mentioned it but europe and the eu commission have in fact uh, sent a whole entire compiled for europe together on of course initiated by spotify again and our friend daniel uh, but this was the I think it was the 31st, oh, the 30th must have been of April, where it's uh, specifically for all music streaming services in Europe. So when it comes to the App Store. So they have already filed this and they have 12 weeks to respond, but there's still no news on that response. So that should be an interesting one to follow. And I also just wanted to clarify that currently um, Spotify in, only pay, I shouldn't say only, but they pay 15%. On, and those subscriptions, I believe, are less than a percent since 99% of their customers buy the App Store. They don't need to pay a fee for, as most just download it and use it for free. That was just what I wanted to add to going heading when I raised my hand the first time. So thanks for that. Okay. Um, there's On that topic, there's a new headline that Spotify has now made a comment about... Um, the Apple announcement last week that they're, you know, allowing app developers to go outside of the, um, go outside of the, the you know, confined gateway of payment. And they're saying that this still doesn't address their anti-competitive uh, position on things. Um, 
So Spotify is not done yet. They feel like they, they still have a bone to pick with Apple over their anti-competitiveness. Because they are... Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what they're referring to them, this major suit. But I thought it was interesting and great that it's applying to the whole of Europe. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be country by country this end, at least. Yeah. Okay. So anyone else with a burning uh, tweet that they've seen lately? I've got a whole bunch to go through here. But just letting anyone popcorn if they want to for a minute. We will get into it. And you can raise your hand as well. Or you can tweet out your own tweet. Just include ours, the TNATW Twitter account, so that we see it. I'm now up to the past uh, caught up. But I still have 16 hours of the most recent tweets to get through, which will take me about an hour. So here's some of the interesting ones that the a video of the full Tesla's full self-driving. They keep updating their full self-driving algorithms inside of the Tesla cars. They're up to beta 9.2 is expected to come out very soon. And you can now see a video of how the upcoming beta 9.2 of Tesla's FSD, full self-driving, handles school zones uh, and errands. Now, there's a YouTube video that I just tweeted out to the Tech News Twitter account. And the next one I'm tweeting out is from Fast Company, from Orion X Net, who sent this in, that the centerpiece of Microsoft's massive new expansion is an energy system with 65 foot-tall thermal energy tanks warmed by hundreds of geothermal wells drilled 550 feet into the ground. That's very deep indeed, um, nearly 200 meters. And they, they says the crowning jewel of the tech giant's new campus expansion isn't a flying saucer or a glass mountain. It's a geothermal energy plant. I love this. So, and you can check that out. I just tweeted that out. And then Rengent. So for those, go ahead. So for those that don't know what this is, basically, um, it, it, like some schools, UC Irvine is one of them. To keep the school cool, uh, they they chill water overnight, and then they pump it through the school during the daytime to cool it. This is basically the opposite, and they they get all the hot water from geothermal sources. So this is just, in my opinion, fantastic. Um, I'm hoping we can do more of this kind of stuff. Okay, um, some some more fantastic headlines here is mental health workers are suffering from burnout as they struggle to keep up with a surge in patients living through the repeated lockdowns. As swaths of the country endures tough restrictions, mental health services like Lifeline reported record-breaking increases in the number of people asking for mental health kind of telemedicine through mental health and but now the mental health workers need some mental health uh themselves they're just a bit overwhelmed and the next one is a lot of people are going to love here it's uh, evan sent this one in uh that the apple car could be introduced later this year and there's a uh, you know an obviously there's a an image of it, although it's you know just somebody's creative idea of what it could look like. Uh, the Apple Car could be introduced as a car could be introduced later this year. And what do they? What are they basing that on? We don't know. It is very well known that they are working on a car. That's very well known, and 
but we don't have any idea of a timeline. So, but why does this person think this? It says renowned Japanese chemist Akira Yoshino, the inventor of the first safe production reliable um, lithium ion battery, recently spoke about Apple's foray into the automated world in a recent interview with Reuters. Discussing the possibilities, Yoshino noted that Apple could lead the convergence of the automotive and information technology industries in future mobility. Going on to discuss the the place of both Apple and Tesla in the electric car industries, revealing his belief that we could see the unveiling of the Apple car later this year. Here's a quote. Tesla has their own independent strategy. The one to look out for is Apple. What they will do, I think they may announce something soon. And what kind of car they would announce, what kind of battery they possibly want to get in around 2025. If they do that, I think they have to announce something by the end of this year. That's just my own personal hypothesis. So if they want to release the car in 2025, they need to announce those plans now, similar to as Tesla did, and many car companies do, is they pre-announce. You know, the Cybertruck was announced you know, two years ago, and it's still a year away. So you, it's not, this is not uncommon at all to kind of pre-announce three years in advance. So if they're going to roll out the cars in 2025, they need to potentially announce it by the end of this year. And they might have the designs in place, and they might even have the initial singular prototype that they could roll out on stage, as Tesla did with the Cybertruck. But that would be a huge barn burner. In uh, and it would reduce sales of all other EVs by Apple fans, basically, who who would patiently wait three years for the Apple car, no doubt. So, how many pre-orders would they get? Oh boy, it's hard to imagine because there's a whole. That would actually, you're you're so right, Tyler. That for the first time, Apple not, you know, being like clockwork, releasing a product like weeks after they announce it would serve a huge strategic advantage against any competitors. It's Is Foxconn behind the top of them? Foxconn is ready. Cheryl, are you okay? <laughs> Putting my computer down, sorry. I forgot to mute. But is um, Foxconn building the EV for Apple as well? Hey, they're not going to tell you that. But Foxconn openly say that they are going to be the fabulous EV manufacturer of the world. Then you can draw your own conclusions. It's okay. <laughs> nobody knows. Are you going to buy Foxconn? Nobody knows. But even making the Apple, it's an interesting investment question. The problem is Foxconn is so big already that even making the Apple car, it'd be interesting to see uh, how much of an uptick in stock price that would make. And it's not a bad idea if they're going to announce the car in the next, well, there's only four months left of the year. And if they, if they do announce it and if they do announce, of course, when they do announce the car, not soon, not far after that, it will, people will figure out who's making it for them because they're not going to make it themselves. That's for sure. So, um, and it is likely to be Foxconn. You're right about that. And it could have a, you know, significant movement in Foxconn stock as a result once it's re- un- once it's revealed or known that Foxconn is making the Apple car. It's a fair point. Might might be worth taking a position in Foxconn uh, in light of this new news. 
So um, then Cheryl or somebody had mentioned they were excited about Cami. Cami's found a article about uh, from ntu.edu out of Singapore, break a sweat to recharge a battery. And this one, uh, Cami, can you talk about this one that you shared? Scientists from a uh, university in Singapore have developed a soft and stretchable material to trend a kind of uh, convert sweat into charging of a maybe a watch I imagine might be the first use case. Kemi, are you there? She's sleeping. That's right. I'm tweeting it out now for everyone who wants to see it. But that's certainly to likely be the first likely use case because watches don't take that much energy, honestly. And uh, but your sweat might not generate that much energy. Nowhere near enough for a Even. phone, by the way. Who knows? Yeah. I, I hope I hope one day they'll be able to use a sweaty pump to charge the phone. You, you would need a For me, what made this story interesting is I've always, well, recently I've been thinking, why don't they make a battery where they just replace the electrolyte? You know, because how a battery charges right now is you have this acid and you have two different types of metals. And the metals basically run from one side to the other when, when to generate electricity. And in order to charge it, you basically do the backwards, right? So my thought has always been, why don't you have something where you can just pour the liquid in and that's where the battery, how the battery charges? This might enable that, um, this whole sweat thing. So for me, I'm going to be watching this. Okay. The next one is... Um... People are excited about the Clubhouse adding spatial audio. So if you have Apple AirPods, uh, the Pros or the 3 or the AirPods Max or any spatial audio enabled um, setup, then you could hear the conversations kind of in a spatial audio environment, which I the, inter the thing that I think is actually most interesting that I've not seen anybody else comment on is how this would be a prerequisite, you'll actually need this for Clubhouse in VR. And it would make sense that you would develop it in audio first. And it's nice to have an, an audio-only format to hear the voices around you in a kind of a circle in a, in a hyper-realistic way. But you're going to need that in VR. So it, the idea is that they might also be working on an Oculus app right now for clubhouse and that would be truly interesting so um as uh, if they have the first mover advantage into uh, oculus with a r room where you can see all the people instead of just little circles on a screen you can see figures sitting around a campfire and whatever in, 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 in an auditorium or something like that that could be super super interesting but you're going to need spatial audio for that so maybe that's why the real reason they're doing it that they haven't revealed yet so just tweeted that one out. And then there's a bunch of other interesting ones on the alternative energy side of things. There's um, this one that we could power our homes with kitchen scraps, according to Fast Company. Here's what has to happen first. <clears throat> the technology is here, but public perception needs to change. So I just tweeted that out from Fast Company powering your home with your kitchen scraps and tyler again i hate to monopolize this but my like is someone like reading my mind my wife and i have been talking about this so much because 
number one, we're wasting all this water when we do dishes. Um, and then there's all these kitchen scraps that like, you know, can be turned into power somehow. Like I'm so happy about this and I'll shut up. I promise the rest of the night. Hold on. Is anyone using the spatial audio currently in Clubhouse? Renjith was just tweeting at me today. I don't know if it's live yet. D was... What do you mean spatial audio, Tyler? Yes, I, I, I tried and it doesn't work yet, apparently. Okay. I have them on. Renjith is raising his hand to comment here. Messi, you just have to update your Clubhouse app. It's, oh. it's actually doing it off of the head. I think it's doing it off of just the earphones because as you guys are talking, it's coming from the bottom corner and the top corner. Mm -hmm. Renjan, uh, please stop. Updating now. Wow. Hey, Dola. If I update like the app, the Clubhouse, I have like the power beats from uh, Apple, the Apple one. Okay. Like, Renjan, are you are you using spatial audio? Yes, I'm using. I have the Bose uh, headphone and it is, yeah, it is giving me this space loaded thing. And it's truly awesome, I would say. Really, really What's awesome. truly awesome about it? Uh, I personally feel that they are giving a quite good number of good, good preference to the people who are on the top. So kind of identifying them as moderators, which gives them kind of a preference and their voice is being heard a little bit in a much better way than the people who are down in that uh, order. Mm -hmm. uh, so that feels pretty awesome. And then you can, uh, when people are on the left and the right, you hear it from different sides, which means like you get kind of feeling that you're sitting on a place and uh, the person who is sitting next to you on the right and left, you feel that, yeah, it's, it's pretty live in that way. It's like surround sound. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, great. So it's good. It's, for it's the truly awesome. I mean, when they announced it, I just in a few seconds I just updated uh, updated the app and I could hear the clubhouse town hall uh, itself in spatial, and it was truly awesome. And Faraz sounded really, really clear today. I had um, texted him like, "What's going on? Like, how come you sound so clear?" And that must be part of it too. Doctor Fran, you want to say something? Yeah, I did. I just wanted to give a quick backstory on this. Um, the, the API for this comes from uh, High Fidelity, which is uh, CEO Philip Rosedale, the creator of Second Life. So Tyler's absolutely correct that it came out of a virtual reality environment, out of High Fidelity when it was 3D. And um, this is good news for Philip Rosedale and High Fidelity. So yay, because I'm really fond of them. That's it. Thank you, Dr. Fran. So... Top Apple analyst predicts satellite calling is coming to iPhone 13. We covered that. And internet trolls are just as mean in real life. That was also one of the top stories of the day. Uh, and then some of the more interesting tweets here that people are sending in here is uh, like this one. That wildfire David Craze sent this one in from Harvard, some university called Harvard says that wildfire smoke is linked to an increase in COVID cases and deaths. Researchers have found strong evidence of an association between exposure to fine particulate air pollution from wildfires in the U.S. and increased risks of severe cases of COVID. Good times, California, with all your wildfires uh, burning up all over the place in Oregon. So something to be mindful about. And the next one, and Dr. Fran might know about this, JT sent this in. A new Apple patent has been uh, revealed about 
entry-level HMD uh, plus iPhone combo device includes AR. And you have to uh, see the photo I just sent about this. Um, but let me click the link here and hopefully describe it a little bit. And thanks to JT for sending this in. It says Apple won their 16th patent for an entry-level HMD plus iPhone combo device that for the first time adds an AR twist. So it's a combo like AR, uh, it says entry level, it's a headset for iTunes, movies, TV shows, games. Apple, Apple has continually researched and developed this project since 2008, if not longer. This week, Apple has granted their 16th patent for this innovation titled display device with optical combiner. It brings a major new dimension to the project of augmented reality. Apple states in their patent background that optical systems may be used to provide images to a viewer in some, this is obviously all uh, legalese in pat when, when people file patents, there's a particular type of legal language they use. Um, and it, 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 it's configured to receive external equipment such as a cellular phone or iPhone so that the, the information on your phone could be sent to your glasses, basically. Used to combine display image light emitting from pixels in the display with real-world image light received from external objects. So it's a combination of the, the data from your phone and the real world simultaneously. So it's, AR, it's an AR version. It's glasses that takes data from your phone and images from the real world and combines them in in your view so that's that's something to look forward to and then this one from Dewa sends in that humans could develop a sixth sense the uh, scientists now say this skill could help you see in the dark and i just tweeted this out as animals go humans have relatively limited senses we can smell as well as dogs oh we can't smell as well as dogs we can't see as many colors as shrimp or find our way home using the earth's magnetic poles as sea turtles do but there's one animal sense we we can learn bat-like echolocation researchers in japan demonstrated this feat in a paper published in the journal uh, pro proving that humans can use echolocation or the ability to locate objects through reflected sound to identify shape and rotation of various objects without light as bats swoop around objects, they send out high-pitched sound waves that then bounce back to them at different time intervals. This helps the tiny mammals learn more about the geometry, texture, and movements of an object. If humans can similarly recognize these three-dimensional acoustic patterns, it could literally expand how, the, how we see the world, says the study author Miwa Sumia. PhD researcher. These kids never played Marco Polo, huh? Well, I have a, uh, I had a friend growing up who was <laughs> blind who did exactly this. We used to make these clicking sounds and could walk through their house and doorways yeah. uh, with precisely with echolocation, essentially. Examining how humans acquire new sensing abilities to recognize environments using sounds or echolocation may lead to understanding of the flexibility of the human brains, we may also be able to gain insights into sensing strategies and other species by comparing with knowledge gained in studies on human echolocation. So thank you for that one, Diwa. The next one's from Evan, that self-driving robocar will be your personal assistant and doesn't need a steering wheel. Baidu 
the, the Chinese tech giant, which is China's Google, has recently revealed the RoboCar, a vehicle with no steering wheel and automatic gold wing doors that is said to be capable of you know, driving and being your personal assistant. And you can now see it. I just tweeted it out. And it looks like a, a plastic version of the uh, DeLorean in Back to the Future. <laughs> kind of like a, a plastic Chinese version of a futuristic DeLorean. Looks kind of cool. And on that subject of the future of cars and China, Evan sends in this one from South China Morning Post that SenseTime, which is China's big facial recognition system where every person is in the system with their face and they regularly catch bad people walking into sporting events, arenas, just by their face with cameras. And sense time makes a big push into technology to power smart driving. China's car makers are rapidly closing the technology gap with global rivals as every new model released is smarter, cleaner, and packs more intelligent features like sense time, who's now, uh, as they've already dominated the facial recognition space in China, is now uh, expanding into, uh, you, you know, Similar technologies around recognizing objects, not just faces, which is very helpful for autonomous vehicles. So it looks like they might be able to leverage their prowess into that space. And then Cami sends in this one from msu.edu, uh, which is M Michigan State University, says, uh, spotting and hearing heart attacks before they strike, a new imaging technique developed by a Spartan lead team uses light sound and nanoparticles to detect plaques that could cause strokes and heart attacks and then rengent sent in this one that the gap which was one of america's big retailers for clothing uh, acquires a 3d fitting room startup called drapper or draper the company said it intends to leverage the technology to improve its try-on experience and accelerate its digital transformation with 3d fitting rooms and you can dive more onto that one. I just tweeted it out. And then Mahogany sends in this one from South China Morning Post that after eco-tragedy, 70,000 protesters embrace Europe's largest saltwater lagoon against one of Spain's worst environmental tragedies in recent years, covered the entire circumference of the Mar Menor, the Little Sea. A human chain covered the entire circumference of the Little Sea in uh, the Mur Murcia region in southeast of Spain on Saturday. So there was a massive human chain, human 70,000 protesters. And we're, we're bound to see a lot more of that as a living gets more uncomfortable due to climate change. So um, the next one is from Mahogany about OnlyFans, the big brouhaha that was going on in recent days where they it's a porn app, basically, and they were banning porn on their app, which was truly confusing. And now the Guardian headline says, why OnlyFans had second thoughts on banning sexually explicit content because they ended up reversing their decision. And it says for five days, it looked as if one of Britain's most successful tech startups was on the verge of make or break a gamble, one of the one that would either see it burst on the global stage or destroy its billion dollar business. OnlyFans, a self-described subscription 
social network announced last week that it would ban sexually explicit content from October. The ban was a shock because behind the generic branding, such content is perceived to be OnlyFans' biggest draw. The site's name has become shorthand for homegrown pornography thanks to its slick interface, easy user experience, and most importantly, loose content policy. Anyone can post pictures or videos, charge charge for views, and if they've got fans, make a living. After news of the impending ban broke, sex workers began sharing advice about other platforms that would still work for them. They also expressed fears that the decision could serve to drive the business back underground or back onto the street after losing one of the few sites that allows individuals to earn real money from adult content. They worried the company would was seeking to do what so many others had, build a business on the back of adult content, then abandon it when mainstream success came calling. Then as suddenly as it began, the pivot was abandoned. On Wednesday, the day after the co-founder and adult performance entrepreneur Tim Stokely had given an interview blaming the decision on banks, refusing to work with the platform, the firm announced it had struck a deal that would allow normal service to resume. It thanked its diverse community, but held back from outright acknowledgement of the importance of explicit content on the site. Considering that they've considering that they've said suspended the ban, not that they aren't going through with it, I think they're going to go through with the ban in a few weeks' time, says Lola Hunt, a Melbourne-based sex worker. The community is very on edge at the moment. Every time a site goes down, our client base is fractured. It's like running bricks and mortar shop and being chased out of town by religious zealots every six months. The site has undergone rapid transformation since it was founded in 2016. Uh, the CEO continues to be the public face of the business in the media. And OnlyFans, which still has its headquarters in the UK, finds itself in an uneasy financial and cultural position at a time when the audience for online pornography in the UK, estimated by the industry to be as many as 25 million people, the site remains large, rarely talked about in the public and proves toxic for many financial institutions. OnlyFans has always marketed itself publicly as a way for a creator to sell subscription content. Get to the point here. When uh, in a statement, OnlyFans denied the instructions were official guidance and said, we don't tolerate. Guardian screwed an article. It, what a pointless article that one is. Sorry. Sorry for that. It didn't. It, why OnlyFans had second thoughts on banning sexual content? We don't know, even after reading the article. So try better Guardian. The next one from Katerina says early life sleep disruptions in children linked to irregular development of the prefrontal cortex building on previous work with uh, the highly social uh, uh, of prairie voles a highly social animal with neurodevelopment similarities to humans researchers from portland um think that uh, early life sleep disruptions are linked to irregular development of the brain in the prefrontal cortex. So maybe your crazy cousin is due to their lack of sleep as a child. Boy, we are, and we're just figuring this out in 2021. Understanding the relationship between sleep and neural development in early life is thus essential to understanding and perhaps preventing de developmental disorders. Building on previous work with Prairie voles, a highly social animal with neurodevelopment similarities to humans, researchers from Portland and California recently published a paper in Current Research in Neurobiology examining the effects of early life sleep disruptions on the prefrontal cortex. 
the prefrontal cortex plays an important role in higher order social learning, executive function, and cognitive flexibility. It's also one of the last brain structures to mature and is thus particularly sensitive to disruptions in development. In the study, male and female prairie voles were either subject or not to sleep disruptance from 14 to 21 days of age. The period roughly corresponds to the first and second years of human neurodevelopment. The authors then tested the, the voles for reduced cognitive flexibility and related disruptions in synaptic structures in the prefrontal cortex. The test To test cognitive flexibility, the authors subjected the voles to fear conditioning, applying a light electric shock through the floor to association with sound. Then in a separate session, the sound was played repeatedly without the shock. The more quickly a subject is able to adjust its response to the sound, the greater its cognitive flexibility. The results of the study confirmed the author's hypothesis in that the voles subject to the electric shocks and dis sleep disruption were less able to change their behavior following the extinction phase. This is, while control vials voles froze, a fear response, less and less frequently as they learned the sound no longer predicted a shock, the, the, sho the, the, the other ones continued to freeze in anticipation. Importantly, both groups froze at similar levels during acquisition, meaning that they acquired information equally well, but could not adapt to the same degree. As in humans, blah, blah, blah. Right. Really interesting finding there. So thank you to Katarina for that one. And speaking of brain development, Indigo Blue sends in this one that a single dose of ayahuasca improves self-perception of speech performance in socially anxious people, study finds. The psychedelic brew known as ayahuasca could help improve the self-perception of those with social anxiety disorder, according to a controlled study. So maybe doing ayahuasca might help people with speech impediments. And then back on the Hong Kong note, uh, Jeremy Taylor, who's a journalist for um, AFP, and which is a, one of the leading press outlets in the world, works out of Hong Kong and Taiwan. As I said, they were all kicked out of uh, mainland China. And he's reporting on uh, Bleak House Books, a Hong Kong bookstore. One of Hong Kong's last remaining independent bookstores is closing. The owners make clear their decision to shutter is nothing to do with economics. They feel it's simply too risky in the current political climate to continue. The, uh, as they say on their own tweet that I'm tweeting out right now, that you can see on the Tech News Twitter account, they say the saddest and most difficult decision I've ever had to make, Bleak House Books, is closing. Our last day will be Friday, October 15th. And because they feared this Hong Kong uh, law that I just was talking about, which is they can be uh, imprisoned for doing anything that the state doesn't like. If they have a book the state doesn't like, they could uh, find themselves in prison and they don't like operating in such a scenario where they can be put in prison just because somebody didn't like a book they were selling. So they're shutting down. So that's quite unfortunate. And that's, that is an actual, there you have the real impacts of this type of things is you have bookstore owners afraid to operate their bookstores and independent bookstores shut down. Hackers are trying to turn Belarus's extensive surveillance state against the dictator Alexander uh, Lukashenko to end his reign. And to do it, they claim to have pulled off one of the most comprehensive hacks of a country in history with help from the inside. 
as they're trying to turn the technological tables on Lukashenko, who does act like a bit of a di dictator and who is widely accused of an, uh, kind of rigging the last election. And now the hackers are fighting back. They're going to shut down the system. And then Evan sends in this one from vcu.edu. A study identifies 579 genetic locations linked to antisocial behavior. The study, published today in the Journal of Nature uh, Neuroscience, is one of the largest genome-wide association studies ever conducted. An analysis of data from 1.5 million people has identified 579 locations in the human genome associated with the predisposition to different behaviors and disorders related to self-regulation, including addiction and child behavioral problems. With these findings, researchers have constructed a genetic risk score, a number reflecting a person's overall genetic propensity based on how many risk variants they carry, that predict a range of behavioral, medical, and social outcomes, including education levels, obesity, opioid use disorder, suicide, HIV infections, criminal convictions, and unemployment. This study illustrates that genes don't code for a particular disorder or outcome. There are no genes for substance use disorder or for behavioral problems, said joint senior author Daniel Dick, PhD, Distinguished Commonwealth Professor of Psychology and Human and molecular genetics at Virginia Commonwealth University. Instead, genes influence the way our brains are wired, which can make us more at risk for certain outcomes. In this case, we find that there are genes that broadly influence self-control or impulsivity, and that this predisposition then confers risk for a variety of life outcomes. <clears throat> the study called Multivariate Analysis of 1.5 Million People Identified Genetic Associations with Traits Related to Self-Regulation and Addiction was published today in the Journal of Nature Neuroscience and was conducted by a consortium of 26 researchers in 17, at 17 institutions in the U.S. and the Netherlands, led by Philip Kohlinger, Ph.D. and professor, and many others in Amsterdam, University of Amsterdam, and University of Texas at Austin, and University of California, San Diego. The study is one of the largest genome-wide association studies ever conducted, pooling data from an effective sample size of 1.5 million people of European descent. The researchers' genetic risk score has one of the largest effect sizes, a measurement of, of the prediction power of, of any genetic risk score for a behavioral outcome to date. It demonstrates the far-reaching effects of carrying a genetic liability towards lower self-control, impacting many important life outcomes. We hope, to, we hope that a greater understanding of how individual genetic differences contribute to vulnerability can reduce stigma and blame surrounding many of these behaviors, such as behavior problem in children and substance use disorders. The indication of more than 500 genetic uh, loci is important, the researcher said, because it provides new insight into our understanding of behaviors and disorders related to self-regulation, collectively referred to as externalizing, and that have a shared genetic liability. We know that re regulating behavior is a critical component of many important life outcomes for substance use and behavioral disorders like ADHD to medical outcomes ranging from suicide to obesity to educational outcomes like college completion. Characterizing the genetic contributions to self-regulation can be helpful in a myriad of ways. It allows us to better understand the biology behind why some people are more at risk, which can assist with medication development 
it can also it can allow us to know who is more at risk so we can put early intervention and prevention programs in place. Identifying genetic risk factors is a critical component of precision medicine, which has the goal of using information about individual genetic and environmental risk factors to deliver more tailored effective intervention specific to that individual's risk profile. The researchers noted, however, that having a high risk profile isn't necessarily a bad thing. For example, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and fighter pilots are often higher at risk taking. DNA is not destiny. We have a unique genetic code and we're all at risk for something, but understanding one's predisposition can be empowering. It can help individuals understand their strengths and their potential challenges and act accordingly. Oh boy, does that have huge implications? Because you could, if you have a genetic predisposition for high risk and low self-control, you are more likely to, you know, uh, play with dangerous drugs, you know, and they give all kinds of really interesting examples here of uh, if you have low self-control, you might be more predisposed to genetically predisposed to obesity and uh, not finishing college. All Wow. But the, the problem is what happens when you are DNA tested and which, by the way, if this is happening at a huge scale at the moment. China is trying to DNA test everybody. Other countries are as well. America likely is as well. And uh, if once these genes become identified and you you have this huge d- database and it's then what happens when tech companies get access to this and they know that you are predisposed to low self-control for e-commerce purposes. And what happens when it's known, you know, you might, you're more at risk of, you know, becoming a drug addict and now they start making new, you know, uh, rules around, you know, this is wild, truly, truly wild. Like it makes all of the tech weird stuff going on now and even the mask wearing issues and then anti-vaxxer issues, all all of this is going to get much, much more interesting when we're all in databases clearly defined by our genetic predispositions to, um, you know, Avoid authority, for example. There could be a genetic disposition for that. There could be, it's going to get really wild really quickly. So thank you for that one, Evan. That's a wild one. Just tweeted that one out. And people with social anxiety disorder show improved symptoms and changes in the brain activity following virtual reality therapy. So if you have a genetic predisposition for anxiety disorder you might be prescribed virtual reality therapy, VR therapy, because you have a genetic predisposition to have social anxiety disorder. Because now this headline says, people with social anxiety disorder show improved symptoms and change in behavior as a result of VR therapy. In an experiment published in the JMIR Medical Health, people with social anxiety disorder showed reduced social anxiety and less negative remuneration following VR therapy. And well, we know from the time moment you're born, we did a little DNA test when you popped out and you have a predisposition for social anxiety disorder, slap a VR headset on that child. So we're now being able to understand some of the genetic predispositions and some of the potential solutions in, in birth. So how long before we see VR headsets in the incubators at the hospitals.
because the headline four headlines ago was about how the prefrontal cortex is affected during the first two years of birth. So that's the critical time to address and do the remedies and therapies while your prefrontal cortex is still developing. This reminds me of, uh, this is all to take us back Tyler short circuit when Johnny Five was reading all those books. That's what, that's what they need to do to the kids. So what do we think? And how long before we just start telling parents, you know, sorry, you can't, uh, have kids a natural way because you have a genetic predisposition for all kind of negative social behaviors that we don't want you to pass on. But, um, we could do, you could go ahead and give us your egg and your sperm and we could go ahead and edit it in the lab and remove all of, out all of those negative predispositions, genetic predispositions. And then we could do in vitro fertilization if you want to have a child. Eugenics movement back again. Hmm, not really. I mean, you, but it would be interesting if. Well, Gattaca. I mean, if you, if you, if you're, if you've got the genes that, you know, society doesn't want to propagate that's okay you can have a kid we just need to edit them first in the in the in the petri dish before we you know replant them into you you know we don't we don't want you passing on it's just like we don't want you passing on a virus so you need to get vaccinated right well we don't want you passing on negative genes either okay let, let's go a little bit on this i have two children that are ivf and we did genetically select them out yep um, you know, because my wife and I were older parents yep. and we were predisposed well, to uh, Down syndrome and stuff. Right. So, no, I'm, I'm with you. Well, that's my no, point is I get it. even though parents might want it themselves, parents might say, you know, I don't want my kid to have my genetic. No, pre- I definitely don't. My pr- I don't want my kids to want to party the way I did right. in college. I would be so much further in life. Precisely my point. The parents might want it themselves. If the state says, hey, uh, we went ahead and did a test for you. We found out here's a bunch of genes that you had that made your life uh, a little more difficult. You would have been likely more successful had you not had low uh, the, this genetic predisposition for, what is it, um, low self-control, you know, which lead, which can't. So why not? Why would you want to burden your child with that? This sounds like what China will definitely do because that's what they do to the panda too. They do it to pandas. Yeah. Interesting. Here it comes. If you think things are wild now with tech, you have seen nothing yet. Holy cow. Is it going to get really freaking wild now that the human genomes have been mapped? And not only was the human genome mapped officially like a month ago for the first time, now you're starting to see these massive studies on more than a million people about how these genes translate into behaviors. And Do you think the Chinese government will want to use their social credit score to match and make their single? Ah, people single with people? low credit scores might be discouraged from having kids and people with high credit scores. Oh, because you can't ride a train or... They'll do matchmaking for them too. Ah, right. If you have too low of a credit score, you can't have kids. Oh, that could happen. That That's wild. I hadn't thought of that. They, they still have the one-child policy for people below a certain credit score. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So the next one is from Ken uh, about United Airlines and Delta Airlines are using data to make truly controversial decisions. How much can data persuade those who have not 
want you to want to believe you. Some airlines think it can be effective. Say what? What is that? Um, data analysis is the joy of our time. Southwest Airlines just took a, a severe step to stop customers being unfaithful. Um, it seems that businesses are spending as much money on bulking up their data capabilities as they are on anything else. I worry that this constant number munching turns us all into permanently neurotic beings. Still, sometimes the numbers seem to help senior executives make decisions that they know won't be universally popular. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby has often been regarded as the quintessential data-driven human. So when he announced that the airline's employees would all have to be vaccinated by October 25th or they'd be fired, it was instructive how he presented the case. Speaking to MSNBC, he began, we knew there'd be some negative reaction and there has been, but my email inbox, particularly from employees, has been running at about 10 to 1 of people just thanking us for doing it. There's there's that instant quantification. 90% seem to be in favor. He'd only just got started. I don't appreciate how many people there are in our workforce and in the country who really know they're looking at the data. They see all the same facts that all of us see. Da, 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 baited into... Anyway, it's, it's a very long article. So I'll let you... Uh, it's from msn.com, but it reads like a, a personal tech blog, uh, interestingly. But I tweeted that one out, and thank you to Ken for sending that one in. And here's one from Rolling Stone that reads, Once the world looks away, we are all dead. And this is on the ground in Kabul during week one of the Taliban takeover. And basically, locals there don't at all believe the Taliban. And um, there's many reports of this. I've seen similar headlines of Americans who have Afghanistan neighbors, Afghani neighbors, who are warning not to believe the Taliban that as soon as the, the the media is not focused anymore that uh, they're going to go back to their regular behaviors and that basically everything they're saying is a lie and whatnot. So um, to hopefully there will be a con- continuous, you know, journalism watching for any opportunity, any, uh, uh, and there already has been, they've already killed one of the cartoonists. And um, when they said there would be no retaliation, so, yeah, the headline from rollingstone.com is once the world looks away we are all dead. So let, let's really hope that's not the case, but it, good that they are raising the warning flags now so that everyone will be vigilantly watching out for for such a scenario. And um Evan sends in this one from the UK register that says the it's now been leaked and a list of police, government, university, and organizations using Clearview AI's facial recognition, which is uh, our friend Charles, who joins us regularly, mortgage algorithm bias, and AI-guided play comes to London. And indeed, Charles is in London at the moment. Clearview AI's controversial facial recognition system has been trialed, at least, by police, government agencies and universities all over the world, according to newly leaked files. Internal documents revealed by BuzzFeed News. Is this an old article? No, it's brand new. 
shows that Clearview offered its technology to law enforcement agencies, governments, and academic institutions in 24 countries, including the UK, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, on a try-before-you-buy basis. The facial recognition business scraped billions of photos from public social media profiles, including Instagram and Facebook, and put them all into a massive database. Clearview's customers can submit pictures of people, and the system will automatically try to locate those people in a database using facial recognition and return any detailed pics picked up from their personal pages if successful. Thus, if the police can, for example, give the service a CCTV camera photo of someone, and if, if it matches a face in the database, the system will report back their information such as their name, social media handles, and so on. Canada, for one, cracked down on the operation. Meanwhile, in Britain, the Metropolitan Police, the Ministry of Defense, and the National Crime Agency, as well as police in North Yorkshire, Northamptonshire, Suffolk, and Surrey, plus a university tested or were given access to Clearview's face recognition algorithms, according to BuzzFeed. A state court of Illinois this week denied Clearview's motion to dismiss the lawsuit brought against it by the ACLU. Illinois law is quite tough on collecting data for biometric applications, including facial recognition. The state's Biometric Information Privacy Act requires companies to obtain written consent from people to collect and store data that can be used to identify for identification purposes. The ACLU sued Clearview in May 2020, claiming it had violated BIPA. Uh, Clearview tried to get the case thrown out by saying its business practices were protected under the First Amendment, but Illinois court didn't disagree, didn't agree. Judge Pamela Marison dismissed the startup's claims and the lawsuit will go ahead. Today's decision shows that it's still possible for individuals to take control of their personal information from big tech. The legislation like BP, BIPA is the key. Rebecca Glenberg, senior staff of counsel for the ACLU of Illinois, said in a statement, we must continue to fight for the right to protect our privacy through control of our personal identification. So, we'll, yeah, we will wait to see how that plays out in that uh, in, in Illinois, in Chicago. But even if they win, yeah, that's just one state that where it might be illegalized. Uh, the rest of the world is going full steam ahead, as this article uh, reveals. So thank you for that one, Evan. And let's see, an advertising company wants to make deep fake clones of your face. This one from Evan, which AI startup is it? I wonder if it's TikTok. Do you need money? Of course you do. If you can tolerate a degree of ambiguity and ethical gray zones, the startup will buy a digital deep fake copy of your face via which AI software will sell people products and education services, according to a recent report from MIT Technology Review. As of writing, the company has roughly 100 composite faces lined up, and it wants to add yours. We've got a queue of people that are dying to become these characters, said Our One's strategy lead, Natalie Monbiot, in, in the report from MIT, to join the small army of brainless faces of the marketing world, deepfake hopefuls can apply on the company's website where you can submit your Instagram profile, email address, and your real name. Naturally, model tier faces aren't necessary since our one wants to use a diverse repertoire of faces of all ages, genders, and races. If you get picked, the firm will film your face speaking and, con and, concor and con 
contorting into a wide array of facial expressions with a green screen background and a high-res camera. With footage in hand, the company will feed your likeness into an AI system, which will build a composite character with which the company can sell whatever it wants. So you can sell your face's likeness to be used as a avatar in in the future. Because in the future, advertisers will not need actual actors in the studio. They will just digitally put in a script and, and a face and make deep fakes of you or whoever the actors are and um, so that you might become an actor, even though you have no acting skills, because they'll handle that part in the computer. And they'll put in the script and the text and the use your voice and your face to... Uh, so if you want to become a digital uh, actor used in commercials and videos, you can sell your digital likeness to this company called one called Our One. So just tweeting that one out to the Tech News Twitter account. And apparently hundreds of people have done it and they're and they're lining up. Futuristic meals <clears throat> are packed in squares and people don't know what to feel. <laughs> and you can see this. I just tweeted out how the the future of meals being packed into little squares, 50 gram squares. It's a really wild concept, I have to say. Designing meals to be much more uh, usable in delivery and drone deliveries and things like that. So why not, if you know the meals are going to be delivered in the future, why not start designing how the meals uh, can uh, be put into little boxes. It's wild. You have to see it. I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account. But it makes perfect sense once you see it. The next one is China orders state firms to mitigate the government cloud data services from South China Morning Post. Notice comes just days before the national legislation comes into effect with penalties of up to 10 million yuan for violations. So China's ordering all of its state agencies to migrate to government cloud data services. And, and I told you this was coming. Here's another prediction that Tyler got right, which is the sovereign clouds, which is China is now ordering all state firms to move all of their data to the government cloud away from non-government clouds. And China's the first to do it. They always are because they, they are the government who understands data and the value of data more than any other country. And Sweden understands the value of data. They're just much slower uh, in their process of being very careful how to do things. And But they no, make no mistake, they will likely be the second as usual, just like cryptocurrencies. Like China's the first with their digital currency. Sweden actually started before China did. They're just being very slow and very careful as they always are. But make no mistake. All the governments are going to do this, all of them, even that little island country that you visited your cousins went to 50 years ago off the coast of, you know, some volcanic island in the middle of nowhere. Yes, even them. They're all going to have sovereign clouds, just like they all have passports and they all have their own money. They can, they now understand that data is just as important, if not more so than the money going in and out of their country. They want to control the data going in and out of their countries and it needs to go in through their sovereign clouds. It's coming. Here it is. Here's the headline. South China Morning Post. China orders state firms to migrate to government clouds. Because they, the government wants to control all the data happening in their borders. 
just like they control all the money in their banks, just like they control all of the passwords through their immigration services. They're going to control all the data. They've now figured it out that the data is valuable and that this is just a natural extension of that. The big question is, will that be good or bad for Amazon and Google and Microsoft, who are the big cloud players today? And the answer is, it will be really, really, really bad for them if they continue to do their traditional cloud business models because the governments don't, that's not what they want. The government wants total and utter authoritarian control of their own sovereign clouds. And if Amazon is willing to build that for them, then they will, that's a huge opportunity. It's, and they likely will because it's that big of an opportunity. They might not. They might say, actually, we can't give you all of the control uh, and build your cloud for you um, because it violates our ethics or some other thing like that. And then, then they will die uh, and they will, you know, they'll have to focus on only, you know, other aspects of the business. But if you play along with the government and, the, and, and meet all of their criteria to build their sovereign clouds for them because they don't know how to do it, someone's got to do it for them. So going to be very interesting. Just watch out that the whole sovereign cloud thing is it's not even officially started yet. You'd, I've never seen any journalist use that word sovereign cloud. That, that will be the word because that's what that's how the, the people at Amazon and Google and Microsoft they've, are referring to it. They've been catching on. They've been catching on to the room, Tyler. I guarantee you people are now listening to this room either via live or via the podcast. Do you see what your podcasts are doing? Yeah. Or? So. Like what kind of numbers? Yeah, I'm just getting curious. good. I'm not, you know, hope, it's, it's hopefully not to pry. But. No, no, it's 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 booming. But the point is, That's is awesome. the I only know I didn't make up that word. My friends who work at Amazon Web Services use that word internally. So that's how they're describing. They knew this was coming. That's how I learned about it. I was on a flight from Stockholm to Paris. We arrived at Charles de Gaulle, got on the train into the city. And the person sitting next to me was a friend of mine from Sweden who works for Amazon Web Services. I said, what are you doing in Paris? He said, meeting with the government. Why are you meeting with the government? Sovereign clouds. That was two years ago. Is, is techno state a word yet? <laughs> we'll get there. So kind of on this point, here's a related headline from Wired.com. A bad solar storm could cause the Internet apocalypse. The undersea cables that connect much of the world would be hit especially hard by a coronal mass ejection, meaning a huge solar flare, which are kind of we're due for one, which would fry the fucking Internet. And make it very difficult to replace. And the article says it would particularly hit all of the international cables so the countries would get disconnected internally the u.s would be okay because the sh the short range internal links would be okay it would fry the satellites um but anyway really interesting read that we just put out and it's, that's of particular concern in sweden most of all because they have digitized their money you don't use cash in in sweden it's all based on internet and data dependent and what do you do when no one is you're in a country where nobody uses money? It's all digital and there is no digital. How do you go grocery shopping? So uh, something for Swedes, perhaps most of all to, cons to consider. So um, that does bring us to the top of the hour. And I still have, dear Lord, uh, another 
nine hours of tweets to dig through, which I promised to do before we meet again in just five hours. So a huge, sincere thank you to everybody for another fun-filled, headline-filled tech news around the world. And we'll see you again in Thanks, five hours. Thank you.